nation has awakened to a sense of neglected ideals and neglected duties, to a consciousness that the rank and file of her people find life very hard to sustain, that her young men find opportunity embarrassed, and that her older men find business difficult to renew and maintain because of circumstances of privilege and private advantage which have interlaced their subtle threads throughout almost every part of the framework of our present law. She has awakened to the knowledge that she has lost certain cherished liberties and wasted priceless resources, which she had solemnly undertaken to hold in trust for posterity and for all mankind, and to the conviction that she stands confronted with an occasion for constructive statesmanship, such as has not arisen since the great days in which her government was set up. There never was a time when impatience and suspicion were more keenly aroused by private power selfishly employed, when jealousy of everything concealed or touched with any purpose not linked with the general good or inconsistent with it, more sharply or immediately displayed itself. Nor was the country ever more susceptible to unselfish appeals or to the high arguments of sincere justice. These are the unmistakable symptoms of an awakening. There is the more need for wise counsel, because the people are so ready to heed counsel, if it be given honestly and in their interest. It is in the broad light of this new day that we stand face to face with great questions of right and of justice, questions of national development, of the development of character and of standards of action, no less than of a better business system, more free, more equitable more open to ordinary men, practicable to live under, tolerable to work under, or a better fiscal system whose taxes shall not come out of the pockets of the many to go into the pockets of the few, and within whose intricacies special privilege may not so easily find covered. What is there to do? There are two great things to do. One is to set up the rule of justice and of right in such matters as the tariff, the correction of the trusts, and the prevention of monopoly, the adaptation of our banking and currency laws to the varied uses to which our people must put them, the treatment of those who do the daily labor in our factories and mines and throughout all of our great industrial and commercial undertakings as they should be treated in a civilized polity, and the political life of the people of the Philippines, for whom we hold government, governmental power in trust for their service, not our own. The other thing, the additional duty, is the great task of protecting our people and our resources, and of keeping open to the whole people the doors of opportunity through which they must, generation by generation, pass, if they are to make conquest of their fortunes in health, in freedom, in peace, and in contentment. In the performance of this second great duty, we are face to face with questions of conservation and of development, questions of forests and water powers and mines and waterways, of the building of an adequate merchant marine, of the opening of every highway and facility. Plainly, it is a new age. There are two great things to do. One is to set up the rule of justice and right in such matters as the tariff, the regulation of trust, and the prevention of monopoly. The business of government is to separate special and particular interests 
from the general interests of wide communities. The initial task this year is to get our government in such shape that we can use it for our own purpose, not against anybody in particular, but for everybody in general. We want to establish a real partnership between all the people and the federal government, instead of between special interests and the federal government. We must effect a great readjustment and get the forces of the whole people once more into play. We denounce the Payne Aldrich Tariff Act as the most conspicuous example ever afforded of the special favors and monopolistic advantages which the leaders of the Republican Party have so often shown themselves willing to extend to those whom they look for for campaign contributions. There should be an immediate revision downward. It should begin with the schedules most obviously used to kill competition and raise prices in the United States, and should be extended to every item which affords opportunity for monopoly and special advantage until special favors shall have been absolutely withdrawn and our laws of taxation transformed from a system of governmental patronage into a system of just and reasonable charges which shall fall where they will create the least burden. The Republican Party does not propose to change any of the essential conditions which mark our present difficulty. Mr. Roosevelt proposes in his platform not to abolish monopoly but to take it under the legal protection of the government and to regulate it, to take the very men into partnership who have been making it impossible to carry out these great programs by which all of us wish to help the people. To look at the politics of the day from the viewpoint of the laboring man is not to suggest that there is one view proper to him, another to the employer, another to the capitalist, another to the professional man, but merely that the life of the country as a whole may be looked at from various points of view and yet be viewed as a whole. The whole business of politics is to bring parties together upon a platform of accommodation and common interest. In a political campaign, the voters are called upon to choose between parties and leaders. Parties and platforms and candidates should be frankly put under examination to see what they will yield us by way of progress. And there are a great many questions which the working man may legitimately ask and press until he gets a definite answer. The predictions of the leader of the new party are as alarming as the predictions of the various San Peter. He declares that he is not troubled by the fact that a very large amount of money is taken out of the pocket of the general taxpayer and put into the pocket of particular classes of protective manufacturers. But that his concern is that so little of this money gets into the pocket of the laboring man, and so large a proportion of it into the pockets of the employer. I have searched his program very thoroughly for an indication of what he expects to do in order to see to it that a larger proportion of this prize money gets into the pay envelope, and I have found only one suggestion. There is a plank in the program which speaks of establishing a minimum or living wage for women workers. And I suppose that we may assume that the principle is, in, is not in the long run meant to be confined in its application to women only. Perhaps we are justified in assuming that the third party looks forward 
to the general establishment by law of a minimum wage. It is very likely, I take it for granted, that if a minimum wage were established by law, the great majority of employers would take occasion to bring their wage scale as nearly as might be down to the level of that minimum. And it would be very awkward for the working man to resist that process successfully, because it would be dangerous to strike against the authority of the federal government. Moreover, most of his employers, at any rate practically all of the most powerful of them, would be wards and protégés of that very government, which is the master of us all. For no part of this program can be discussed intelligently without remembering that monopoly, as handled by it, is not to be prevented, but accepted and regulated. When you have thought the whole thing out, therefore, you will find that the program of the new party legalizes monopoly and of necessity subordinates working men to them and to the plans made by the government both with regard to employment and with regard to wages. Take the thing as a whole, and it looks strangely like economic mastery over the very lives and fortunes of those who do the daily work of the nation, and all this under the overwhelming power and sovereignty of the national government. There is a new party which it is difficult to characterize because it is made up of several elements. As I see it, it is made up of three elements in particular. The first consists of those Republicans whose consciences and whose stomachs could not stand what the regular Republicans were doing. Added to this element are a great many men and women of noble character and of elevated purpose who believe that this combination of forces may in the future bring them out on a plane where they can accomplish those things which their hearts have so long desired. I have no word of criticism for them. Then there is a third element in the new party of which the less said the better. To discuss it would be interesting only if I could mention names, and I have forbidden myself that indulgence. We have in this party two things, a political party and a body of social reformers. Mr. Roosevelt put forth an admirable platform of what he would like to do for the people. But how is he going to do it? He proposes in his platform not to abolish monopoly, but to take it under the legal protection of the government and to regulate it. In other words, to take the very men into partnership who have been making it impossible to carry out these great programs by which all of us wish to help the people. It is perfectly idle talk of doing things and your hands are tied for you, so long as the men who now control the industry of the country continue to control it. Now we don't want to disturb the industry of the country. We are not here to destroy the industry which these men have built up, but we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people which these men have established, and which makes it impossible that we should give ourselves a free hand in the service of the people. There are two programs. The democratic program is this. To see to it that competition is so regulated that the big fellow cannot put the little fellow out of business. For he has been putting the little fellow out of business for the last half generation. The program of the third party is to take these big fellows that have been putting the little fellow out of business and regulate them. Saying that is all right, you have put the other fellows out of business, but we are not going to put the little fellows back where you destroy them. We're going to adopt you and say, run the business of the country, but run it in the way we tell you to run it. 
Greetings, everybody. CJ here, back in action with another dose of Dangerous History. You were just listening to, in case you were wondering, the banality-laden voice of evil right there. Yes, that was the voice of Woodrow Wilson speaking. That segment you heard was an amalgamation pasted together from several segments that were recorded by Wilson speaking during the 1912 election. I got those segments on YouTube. Someone had posted them there and said they were recorded for phonograph distribution back during the 1912 election. I honestly don't know if all the different segments were from the same continuous speech or if they were originally separate segments or what, but I did my best to paste together several segments of Wilson speaking in a way that at least seemed to mostly kind of hang together and make sense. So this episode, if I'm not mistaken, is part seven in the DHP Villains Woodrow Wilson series, and it will center on the 1912 election, first looking at the nomination processes, and then at the general election campaign and its results, which, of course, plot spoiler, put Woodrow Wilson into the White House. A result, as you might expect, I'm not exactly thrilled about, although, to be honest, I'm not sure if Wilson winning in 1912 was worse than if the runner-up had won, which was, of course, Teddy Roosevelt running on the Bull Moose Party ticket. If you don't know, the 1912 presidential election in the United States was a weird and interesting one for a variety of reasons. For the first, and as far as I can think of, really the only time in a U.S. presidential election you had a still popular recent ex-president, namely T.R., coming out of retirement to challenge, first from within his own party, a sitting incumbent president who was seeking re-election, namely William Howard Taft. And then when Teddy Roosevelt failed to get the Republican nomination, he, this popular recent ex-president, will run third party in the general election. The only other instance in U.S. history I can think of of an ex-president running on a third-party ticket trying to become president again was, if I'm not mistaken, Martin Van Buren, I think, ran on the free soil third-party ticket back before the Civil War. And this is just off the top of my head, so maybe I'm confusing him with somebody else, but I'm pretty sure Martin Van Buren, some number of years after he served his one term as president as a Democrat, ran on the Free Soil Party ticket, but unlike Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, Martin Van Buren on the Free Soil ticket, he had nowhere near the popularity and fan base that Teddy Roosevelt had in 1912. So you'll have Taft, the incumbent Republican, Teddy Roosevelt on the Progressive or Bull Moose Party ticket, Wilson as the Democrat, and then just to throw even one more wild card into this mix, you'll have a fourth option in the 1912 election in the form of Eugene Debs's Socialist Party candidacy. And while Debs would not win any electoral college votes in the election, he still did quite well for a minor party candidate, especially considering in the 1912 election, the socialists weren't even really a third party. They were more like a fourth party because the recently formed Progressive Party had much more in the way of a following and of funding. So anyway, we'll start with talking about the party's nominations. We'll cover them in the order that they occurred, and we'll spend the most time 
covering the Republican and Democratic Party nominations, simply because not only are they the two major parties, but also those two parties were the ones that had the most contested nomination processes in 1912. So, in the last installment in this series, we basically covered how Wilson was pretty much running for the presidency ever since he first decided to even try to run for the governorship of New Jersey. So, we won't spend as much time on the backstory of the Democratic contest. But there's a fair amount of backstory on the Republican nomination contest in 1912, which was a heavily contested and divisive one, and which ultimately split the party and paved the way for Wilson to be able to win a big Electoral College victory, despite achieving a mere plurality, but not a majority, in the national popular vote. But anyway, the Republicans were the first party in 1912 to make their nomination choice, so we'll dig into them a bit first. But to get a full understanding of what happened at the actual convention, we've really got to drop the needle on the story a couple of years earlier. So let's talk about what happened within the Republican Party prior to the 1912 convention. So, during his 1904 re-election campaign, Republican President Theodore Roosevelt had said that if he were in fact re-elected, he would step down at the end of that second term and would not seek another term, even though, you know, legally, constitutionally, he could have done so at the time. And he was a rather popular president, so had he run for a third term in 1908, there's a good chance he would have gotten it. But ultimately, as 1908 approached, T.R. decided to keep the promise that he had made to step down, and he strongly and warmly endorsed his Secretary of War and longtime friend, William Howard Taft of Ohio, for the Republican nomination. And with T.R.'s backing, Taft got the nomination, and then handily defeated Democratic opponent William Jennings Bryan in the general. Then, within just a few weeks of handing over the presidency to Taft, T.R. went on an African safari that lasted, I think, a bit over a year, in which he killed literally thousands of animals, many of which would end up in museums. During his time in Africa, T.R.'s opinion on Taft began to strongly shift from positive to negative. T.R. began to think that Taft was deviating too much from the policies that T.R. had set while he was president, particularly in regard to what was probably the biggest political issue of the era, which was the so-called trust question. Now, if you don't know, in America in the late 19th and early 20th century, 
the term trust was used to describe a giant corporation, particularly one that was a monopoly or perhaps a near monopoly that was trying to become a real monopoly or even just perhaps a handful of giant companies that between them dominated an industry in sort of a quasi-cartel arrangement. And lots of Americans had issues with how this was working out in the economy and how this affected politics, and there were a variety of different perspectives on what should be done regarding the trusts. Most sectors of political opinion seem to have thought the trusts as they were operating in the early 20th century were a problem. But there was giant disagreement over what exactly to do about it. Now, the change of heart on the part of TR towards Taft is often summarized as, well, Taft was just too favorable to big business corporate interests, to the trusts. And in some specific instances, that might be true. But actually, when you dig into the details, you find that what really got TR pissed was actually when Taft began to do more aggressive trust busting than TR had done as president. And trust busting in this context, if you don't know, simply means bringing some sort of legal action or prosecution against a big corporation for some sort of alleged misdeeds. And the fact of the matter is that TR gets this reputation as Mr. Trustbuster, even though Taft actually did more trust busting in four years as president than TR did in eight years as president. TR's statement, his sort of policy or approach to the trust question while he was president, was that not all trusts were bad just because they were big. TR as president had argued that some of the trusts were behaving well and honorably and should be left alone, and that those sorts of trusts not only weren't harming the public, but were doing positive things for the public by being more efficient and taking advantage of economies of scale and that sort of thing. So TR said in regard to quote-unquote good trusts, they should be left alone and not bothered or broken up or anything like that by the government. But TR said some trusts are bad, not due to their size, but due to their specific behavior, and that these bad trusts should face some sort of consequences from the federal government, up to and including potentially breaking up in severe cases. But TR generally preferred breaking up a giant corporation only as kind of a last resort. So Teddy Roosevelt, while he was in the White House, sorted out America's trusts into good and bad. And interestingly, most of the really big trusts that he gave the thumbs up to were J.P. Morgan connected or outright J.P. Morgan owned companies, such as General Electric, AT&T, International Harvester, and U.S. Steel. TR basically told these companies that they had nothing to fear from the federal government and they were good trusts. But once Taft was president, he didn't always share that exact view. Taft's stance was that any company that was a monopoly or very close to being a monopoly should be broken up. And Taft, a guy with a judicial background, favored using the legal system for handling these cases rather than giving it to some sort of administrative or regulatory agency, which is more what TR came to prefer. So like I said, Taft actually ended up doing more trust busting in four years than TR had done in eight. And some of the companies that Taft ended up going after with antitrust suits 
were companies like U.S. Steel that TR had explicitly given a thumbs up to as you guys are good trusts and you've got nothing to worry about from the federal government. So when Taft instead went after some of these companies, like U.S. Steel, this got TR more pissed than anything that Taft had done. I mean, there were some other policies and things that TR disagreed with that Taft instituted, but the biggest one that really seemed to have pissed TR off the most was that Taft went after some of the trusts that TR had said were good trusts. TR seems to have taken this personally as if Taft had reneged on TR's promise to these companies that they were all right and had nothing to worry about. So, in other words, despite the standard story that TR got disillusioned with Taft because Taft was being too favorable to big business interests, in reality, what really got TR the most pissed off about Taft's conduct in the White House were actually instances when Taft took a harder line against the trusts than TR had as president. So anyway, not long after he returned from his safari, in August of 1910, Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech to a group of Civil War veterans that got known as his New Nationalism speech. And though TR didn't officially throw his hat in the ring for about another year and a half for the 1912 election, in hindsight, I think you could definitely look at this speech as kind of an unofficial opening salvo of his campaign, coming out of retirement even more progressive and statist than he had been when he was still in the White House. TR's progressivism while he was actually president was kind of vague. To some degree, he was sort of making decisions and policy on kind of a semi-ad hoc basis. But towards the latter end of his presidency and the first few years that he was out of office, he really seemed to have started studying progressive ideology more, to read more of the leading progressive intellectuals who were writing on economic and political issues. And so T.R. coming out of retirement, getting back into the ring, is much more of a radical progressive than he was when he was still in the White House. And you can see this even in this early speech in August of 1910. T.R. said, quote, In every wise struggle for human betterment, one of the main objects, and often the only object, has been to achieve in large measure equality of opportunity. In the struggle for this great end, nations rise from barbarism to civilization, and through it people press forward from one stage of enlightenment to the next. One of the chief factors in progress is the destruction of special privilege. The essence of any struggle for healthy liberty has always been and must always be to take from some one man or class of men the right to enjoy power or wealth or position or immunity, which has not been earned by service to his or their fellows. This is what you fought for in the Civil War, and that is what we strive for now. This conflict between the men who possess more than they have earned and the men who have earned more than they possess is the central condition of progress. Practical equality of opportunity for all citizens, when we achieve it, will have two great results. First, every man will have a fair chance to make of himself all that in him lies. Second, equality of opportunity means that the commonwealth will get from every citizen the highest service of which he is capable. 
there can be no effective control of corporations while their political activity remains. To put an end to it will be neither a short nor an easy task, but it can be done. Laws should be passed to prohibit the use of corporate funds directly or indirectly for political purposes. Combinations in industry are the result of an imperative economic law which cannot be repealed by political legislation. The effort at prohibiting all combinations has substantially failed. The way out lies not in attempting to prevent such combinations, but in completely controlling them in the interest of the public welfare. For that purpose, the Federal Bureau of Corporations is an agency of first importance, end quote. And in that passage that I read to you, there were some ellipses in my notes. There were, you know, some sentences I skipped over in order to give you the gist of what he's saying as concisely as possible. But anyway, this bureau he refers to, the Federal Bureau of Corporations, which was created during TR's term as president in 1903, was somewhat analogous to the Interstate Commerce Commission. And basically, TR wanted to drastically increase the power of both the Bureau of Corporations as well as the ICC, to have even more power to regulate railroads in the case of the ICC, and major corporations engage in interstate commerce in the case of the Federal Bureau of Corporations. By the way, during Wilson's presidency, the Bureau of Corporations would become the Federal Trade Commission. T.R. continued in this speech to call for much more federal control of the economy. Quote, The prime need is to change the conditions which enable these men to accumulate power, which it is not for the general welfare that they should hold or exercise. We grudge no man a fortune which represents his own power and sagacity when exercised with entire regard to the welfare of his fellows. We grudge no man a fortune in civil life if it is honorably obtained and well used. It is not even enough that it should have been gained without doing damage to the community. We should permit it to be gained only so long as the gaining represents benefit to the community. So he's saying here that if you're wealthy, you're only entitled to it so long as you're gaining that fortune somehow represents you benefiting the community. One wonders how that would apply to T.R.'s own rather hefty family fortune that he inherited. I don't recall him ever offering to give up his mansion in Oyster Bay to be turned into a low-income housing apartment building. But anyway. Continuing, T.R. says, quote, This, I know, implies a policy of a far more active governmental interference with social and economic conditions in this country than we have yet had. But I think we have got to face the fact that such an increase in governmental control is now necessary. No man should receive a dollar unless that dollar has been fairly earned. Therefore, I believe in a graduated income tax on big fortunes and in a graduated inheritance tax on big fortunes, properly safeguarded against evasion and increasing rapidly in amount with the size of the estate. We are face to face with new conceptions of the relations of property to human welfare, chiefly because certain advocates of the rights of property as against the rights of men have been pushing their claims too far. 
every man holds his property subject to the general right of the community to regulate its use to whatever degree the public welfare may require it. End quote. So, TR is advocating for the state to basically have a blank check to interfere with and abrogate private property anytime those running the state deem that doing so serves the super vague concept of fairness and the public welfare and benefiting the community. Now, after going on with much more detail on specific policies in regard to this, including things like calling for new labor regulations, calling for new workmen's comp programs, child labor laws, and increased public schooling, TR wraps up by saying, quote, I do not ask for over-centralization, but I do ask that we work in a spirit of broad and far-reaching nationalism when we work for what concerns our people as a whole. We are all Americans. The national government belongs to the whole American people, and where the whole American people are interested, that interest can be guarded effectively only by the national government. End quote. Is it just me, or does that sound like a whole lot of circular reasoning? Anyway, continuing. Quote, the American people are right in demanding that new nationalism, without which we cannot hope to deal with new problems. The new nationalism puts the national need before sectional or personal advantage. It is impatient to the utter confusion that results from local legislatures attempting to treat national issues as local issues. It is still more impatient with the impotence which springs from overdivision of governmental powers. This new nationalism regards the executive power as the steward of the public welfare. It demands of the judiciary that it shall be interested primarily in human welfare rather than in property, just as it demands that the representative body shall represent all the people rather than any one class or section of the people. Those who oppose all reform will do well to remember that ruin in its worst form is inevitable if our national life brings us nothing better than swollen fortunes for the few, and the triumph in both politics and business of a sordid and selfish materialism. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this all sounds hyper-collectivistic and actually rather fascistic, particularly when you combine it with TR's constant warmongering and militarism which doesn't come through much in this speech, but which is all over most of his entire career. Now, as I mentioned, when he gave this speech, T.R. had not yet announced that he'd be coming out of retirement to challenge Taft, not even privately to close friends and family members. But over the course of the next year and several months or so, he began making his attitude towards Taft known, behind the scenes, to various people that were close to him. So, for example, in August of 1911, T.R. wrote to his son, Theodore Jr., at which point he hadn't yet fully turned against Taft, but clearly was starting to. Anyway, he wrote, quote, My present intention is to make a couple of speeches for Taft, but not to go actively into the campaign. But I do not care for Taft. 
He is a flub-dub, with the streak of the second-rate and the common in him, and he has not the slightest idea of what is necessary if this country is to make social and industrial progress. End quote. T.R. then goes on to say that he thinks of Taft as a better president than McKinley or Benjamin Harrison, but he then laments that Taft, as president, has increasingly been, quote, acting as to identify conservatism with reaction and to deprive the progressives of leadership and permit them to run every which way to destruction, end quote. Now, earlier in January of 1911, a group of Republicans that included nine senators, 13 congressmen, and six governors, as well as some other significant members of the party, formed a group called the National Progressive Republican League, or NPLR, whose main mission was to oppose Taft's control of the Republican Party. The most significant driving force behind this was Progressive Republican Senator Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin who announced in the spring of 1911 that he would be throwing his hat in the ring for the party's presidential nomination, challenging Taft. By the latter months of 1911, LaFollette was actively campaigning for the Republican nomination. The unknown factor at this time was, of course, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a less consistent and less independent progressive than LaFollette, but who was the only other progressive-leaning Republican in the party who had even more heft than LaFollette did, even more of a following amongst progressive Republicans. But over the course of 1911, T.R. stayed neutral. He didn't announce that he'd be running, but he also did not come out in favor of LaFollette either. In December of 1911, Teddy Roosevelt wrote in a letter to a friend who was a judge in Colorado, quote, I very emphatically feel that to me personally, to be nominated in 1912 would be a calamity, end quote. And then a little further into the same letter, he reiterates these sentiments, saying, quote, Suffice it to say that it seems to me that it would be, from my standpoint, a very great misfortune to be nominated, and that I am not yet convinced that the public need would be met by such nomination, end quote. However, by January of 1912, the next month, he was changing his tune, first privately and then publicly, saying that he would consider running if there was genuine popular demand to nominate him. In early February of 1912, La Follette, who was suffering some serious health issues and family stresses at the time, gave a two-hour-long speech in Philadelphia to a group called the Periodical Publishers Association of America, which as you might guess, was comprised of a lot of major publishers. And this speech probably killed LaFollette's hopes for the presidential nomination. Now, as of this recording, I don't have a ton of specific details of exactly what he said and what happened. But some of the people who witnessed the speech described it as a man having a nervous breakdown in public. Supposedly, he completely lost his train of thought a bunch and verbally attacked the audience, that kind of thing. I mean, it almost sounds like a Michael Richards-style breakdown a little bit, other than I haven't found any references that LaFollette did something like spouting off racist or anti-Semitic diatribes or anything like that. 20th century American historian Ray Stannard Baker, who went on to do a lot of work on Woodrow Wilson, 
was personally present for this event. At the time, Baker was a supporter of La Follette, and in one of his volumes of Woodrow Wilson Life and Letters, Baker refers to this speech as a quote-unquote tragic failure for La Follette. Baker writes, quote, He spoke for two hours and ten minutes to an audience that had already been for nearly four hours in their seats. He was from the first bitterly antagonistic to his audience, to the spirit of the occasion. He made a scathing attack upon the newspaper press, upon some of the very editors and publishers who sat before him, who were his hosts. End quote. Baker says that La Follette frequently repeated himself, clearly was losing his train of thought, and that he and the audience became increasingly mutually hostile as the speech went on. Now, I do plan on doing some more research and maybe some DHP coverage, particularly likely to be uh, bonus episodes on La Follette at some point in the future, uh, because I find him to be a very, very interesting historical character, a very singular politician. So I'm sure that when I do that research, I'll come across much more detail on this whole incident than I've come up with as of this recording. By the way, Woodrow Wilson actually spoke earlier at the same event, and according to Baker, he made a much more favorable impression on Baker and everyone else present than La Follette did. Wilson was, you know, collected and smooth and all that stuff, so really seemed great by comparison with La Follette coming on later and having a breakdown. So anyway, the fallout from this speech, combined with T.R. announcing very soon thereafter that he would also be seeking the 1912 Republican nomination, these two things were kind of a one-two punch that for practical purposes ended La Follette's chances. Now, he did officially continue his candidacy right up through the convention, but after February 1912, the contest within the Republican Party was really just between T.R. and Taft. And at the end of it all, La Follette would end up getting very few delegate votes. T.R.'s first major speech after officially throwing his hat into the ring was in Ohio on February 12, 1912. There he came out swinging as more of a progressive than ever before, saying things in his speech such as, quote, I believe in pure democracy. We progressives believe that the people have the right, the power, and the duty to protect themselves and their own welfare, that human rights are supreme over all other rights, that wealth should be the servant, not the master, of the people. End quote. Notice that he said that human rights should be supreme over all other rights, which to me begs the question, what rights are there that are not quote-unquote human rights? Now, presumably, he's not concerned about rights in regard to animals or plants or minerals. So exactly what non-human rights is he speaking about here? You know, there's not much reason to believe that T.R. would acknowledge much in regard to animal rights. So, I'm pretty sure he's primarily, if not exclusively, talking about property rights. And the idea that property rights are not human rights is a favorite progressive rhetorical move to this day. Even though it's obviously bullshit if you stop to think about it, since the whole idea of property rights is ascertaining who, meaning which human, has the valid claim to own and control something, right? So in other words, 
property rights ultimately are human rights because the idea is which human has the right to this thing, this resource, whatever it is. But progressives often perform the intellectually dishonest move of trying to act as if property rights are the rights of the object or property themselves somehow, right? And this is how you can say, I'm for human rights as against property rights. It's like, well, property rights are a type of human rights. So you're either ignorant of what property rights means, or you're being dishonest to score political points. Of course, we should probably also mention, even though I've mentioned it before on this podcast, on previous episodes, that in reality, progressives really reject the entire concept of rights in the classical understanding of rights. Though, of course, they will use the language of rights in a manipulative way in order to make their rhetoric more appealing. Anyway, T.R. continues in the speech with a string of things that are now basically progressive rhetorical cliches, but which, to be charitable, probably were only just starting to become progressive rhetorical cliches back in 1912. Things like, quote, We believe that unless representative government does absolutely represent the people, it is not representative government at all. We test the worth of all men and measures by asking how they contribute to the welfare of the men, women, and children of whom this nation is composed. We are engaged in one of the great battles of the age-long contest waged against privilege on behalf of the common welfare, end quote. So, again, more progressive platitudes, including one of my biggest objections to progressivism, which is the belief that there even is such a thing as the common good or the general welfare when you're talking about a nation of many, many millions of people, each of whom have their own distinctive interests and preferences. The idea that there actually is something like the common good, the general welfare, the will of the people, any of these things, in a giant nation as large as the United States was in 1912, let alone today where it's multiple times larger than that, is just insane and ridiculous when you try to think about it rationally. And that's why these sorts of platitudes are not intended to be picked apart rationally. They're intended to be emotion-driving tools to get votes and score political points. And another thing I'll point out here, the man who is claiming in this speech that he is waging a battle against privilege and on behalf of the common welfare is Teddy Roosevelt. Wikipedia has a page ranking the presidents of the United States by peak net worth, all adjusted into $2016 in order to compare apples to apples. And what you will find is that in the group of U.S. presidents, most of whom were way wealthier than the average American, to put it mildly, Teddy Roosevelt is the fourth richest president in American history. The only presidents who had a peak net worth in inflation-adjusted dollars higher than T.R. were Trump, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson. Every other president of the United States was poorer than Teddy Roosevelt. Furthermore, keep in mind, Teddy Roosevelt was the opposite of a self-made man. His fortune was almost entirely inherited. He came from a very old-money, blue-blooded family who had been wealthy New Yorkers since colonial times. So the idea that this is the guy who's going to lead a real battle against privilege is just hilarious. 
it's as hilarious and absurd as all of those blue-collar Americans who really believed that Trump genuinely cared about them and their problems and was really going to try to do something to fix their situation. It's just ridiculous. So anyway, TR then goes on in the speech to say that a more fair distribution of wealth and prosperity needs to take place. But I will give him his due that he does at least acknowledge in the speech that prosperity needs to be created in the first place before it can be redistributed. Oftentimes, progressives don't even acknowledge that, and they just sort of assume a given level of wealth and innovation and technology and abundance will just like magically always come into existence, and it's just a matter of redistributing it. And there's the belief that no amount of intervention and redistribution will affect the creation of the wealth in the first place, which is ridiculous. So at least TR understood that you need to be a little careful, at least give a little bit of thought to the idea that you don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, even if you might want to redistribute those eggs. So he goes on to elaborate his view regarding the trust issue, which is, in his opinion, that giant corporations are inevitable and potentially good, that they're just sort of an inevitable outcome of industrial progress, because they can, in his belief, be more efficient. However, he argues that the government needs to be much more involved in regulating them to make sure they are operating in the interests of that elusive, undefinable rhetorical MacGuffin, the public welfare. TR says, quote, I do not believe in making mere size of and by itself criminal, end quote. But he says that large size in a business, quote, does unquestionably carry the potentiality of such grave wrongdoing that there should be by law provision made for the strict supervision and regulation of these great industrial concerns doing an interstate business, end quote. He then uses a phrase which I believe he first used when he was still president, and that is square deal. This vague term is the earliest case I'm aware of, of a presidential candidate using a catchy but super vague phrase to describe his platform. A vague but nice sounding phrase that voters can then kind of Rorschach their beliefs and preferences and hopes onto. In this vein, see also such things as New Deal, Fair Deal, New Frontier, Great Society, Hope and Change, and Make America Great Again, to name just a few later examples of this phenomenon. TR then goes on to say that, quote, The chief trouble with big business has arisen from the fact that big business has so often refused to abide by the principle of the square deal, end quote and that therefore businesses which are monopolies or near monopolies, quote, should be carefully supervised, regulated, and controlled by governmental authority, and such control should be exercised by administrative rather than by judicial officers. No effort should be made to destroy a big corporation merely because it is big, merely because it has shown itself a peculiarly efficient business instrument, end quote. He then goes on in the speech to support such progressive measures of the time as direct primaries for party nominations for political office, 
direct popular election of U.S. senators, as well as much more public ability to vote and potentially override judicial decisions about the constitutionality of laws and programs. Though my understanding is that he only wanted this to apply to state courts and not to the U.S. Supreme Court. But he justifies this proposal to let the public be able to override by vote certain judicial decisions by saying, quote, The power to interpret is the power to establish. And if the people are not to be allowed finally to interpret the fundamental law, ours is not a popular government. End quote. For his part, Taft seems to have been genuinely surprised and hurt by T.R.'s actions and his rhetoric, not just by the fact that T.R. threw out a friendship of more than a decade and turned against him, but also that he did it in kind of typical T.R. fashion, which meant a lot of personal attacks and nastiness. Taft was one of these guys who was very gregarious and always a gentleman, even to those he disagreed with and who might have been his political opponents. Whereas T.R. was much more one of those guys like Andrew Jackson or Richard Nixon or Donald Trump, who was very Manichaean in his personal worldview, in which anyone who wasn't 100% on his side in lockstep with him, was classified as not just an opponent, but a personal enemy. Granted, T.R. didn't swear, and his insults were often expressed in sort of Ned Flanders-esque, comical and anachronistic euphemisms. For example, I think we've already mentioned that he referred to Taft as a flubdub, and back in 1898, T.R. had said, that President William McKinley had the backbone of a chocolate eclair, for example. But even so, Taft knew T.R. well enough to know that T.R. meant these silly-sounding insults like flubdub to be personal and insulting and to basically be like fighting words. Not only does Taft seem to have been personally stung by T.R.'s turn against him, but he seems to have been genuinely disturbed by T.R.'s increasing radicalism. Now, Taft seems to have considered himself a conservative progressive, and Taft seems to have previously thought that T.R. was kind of in the same boat, too, that he was a conservative progressive or moderate conservative in the sense that he was in favor of gradual reforms and things, but not in favor of sudden radical changes. So Taft had mostly been on board with T.R.'s policies when T.R. was actually president, and was at least somewhat more moderate than he was by 1911-1912. Remember, Taft had been in T.R.'s cabinet, after all, and the two had been friends. But when T.R. began to lurch in a more 
radically statist progressive direction after leaving office. He basically turned Taft into a conservative, even a reactionary by comparison. Which, you know, Taft arguably was very conservative compared to T.R. or Wilson. But he wasn't particularly conservative by comparison with, say, Grover Cleveland. So anyway, once T.R. got into the ring and his personal attacks against Taft stepped up and his much more radicalized politics began to really assert themselves, Taft seems to have then decided that it was really, really important that T.R. not get the Republican Party's nomination for president in 1912. Now, I'll tell you, in case you don't already know, that Taft was one of these guys who didn't really love the job of being president. And he likely wouldn't have been all that keen to do another four years in the job. Aside from some of his own personal statements about not liking the office, there's evidence that he was some combination of stressed and depressed that made his weight problem, which he'd always had, at least since adulthood, if not childhood, I'm not quite sure when he started to be overweight. But anyway, Taft had always, at least for his adult life, been a huge dude. But when he was president, he got to, I believe, his all-time high weight, which, if memory serves, was somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. And yet, when Taft leaves the presidency, he ends up losing a significant amount of weight and getting much healthier. Which, again, is just an outward symbol, right? That it wasn't good for his psychology and his physiology to have the job of president. So, you know, it's likely if somebody was stepping into the Republican field that Taft liked and felt comfortable with as a spokesman for the party, Taft may very well have just stepped aside after four years. But with T.R. doing what he was doing, Taft felt kind of obligated to try and hold the line against him. Because T.R. had made it personal, and because from Taft's perspective he was going in a dangerous ideological direction and was trying to drag the entire Republican Party along with him, Taft decided that he really had to try to do everything that he could to stop T.R. from, in his perspective, hijacking the party in this much more radical direction. And from everything I've seen in researching for this episode, it does seem that Taft was much more concerned with blocking T.R. from getting the Republican nomination in 1912 than he was with actually getting himself, Taft, re-elected to the presidency in the general campaign. So really, Taft's campaign to hang on to the Republican Party nomination was, more than anything, an attempt to hold the Republican Party in a relatively more conservative direction. Again, relative to where TR was trying to pull it, and also relative to where the Democratic Party had been heading since about 1896, too. So Taft's message in this campaign, both in the primary campaign and in the general, was very much of a constitutionalist, legalist conservative, which isn't exactly my cup of tea, but which I do find much less dangerous than the progressivism of T.R. or Wilson. Because at least somebody who's a constitutionalist, in theory, acknowledges that there ought to be some limits on state power. Now, we can criticize them for being inconsistent sometimes, or for not really holding a hard line on certain things. You know, there's always plenty of specific criticisms you can make of constitutional conservatives, but at least they're on board with the concept that there ought to be some hard limits to state power, whereas progressives really don't acknowledge that other than, you know, as a temporary matter of prudence or policy. 
But as you may remember from my super deep dive into Woodrow Wilson's academic work, at the end of the day, somebody like Woodrow Wilson doesn't believe that there are or ought to be any real hard and permanent restrictions on what the state ought to be able to do. Again, other than maybe like prudence and, you know, will it, will a particular state action bring about the results you want? But as far as like legal or moral, you know, constitutional limits on the state, progressives are against all that stuff. In many of his speeches in 1912, Taft warned against the progressives' desire to make the American system much more democratic than it already was. And Taft really stressed the checks and balances of the U.S. constitutional system that were designed to rein in the excesses of democracy. So, for example, Taft warned against T.R.'s proposal to make certain types of judicial decisions subject to being overturned by popular referendum. In March of 1912, speaking in New Hampshire, Taft said that the only way to secure everyone's rights, quote, is to have a constitution which shall limit the power of the people in one election to do what they would do. In other words, if the people by one election could destroy our present government and take up another, then we should be subject to momentary passion one that we all recognize would be dangerous to the body politic, end quote. Taft, who, by the way, earlier in his career, had already spent time as a judge, and who later, after leaving the White House, would become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. So, you know, very much had the judge mindset and all that. Taft portrayed the judicial system as a key check to prevent a majority from oppressing individuals or minority groups contrary to the Constitution, and progressive proposals to subject judges and their decisions to potential democratic overruling Taft portrayed as being dangerous threats to constitutional government and to individual rights. So, Taft said in this New Hampshire speech, quote, the man who tells the truth to the people is the real friend of the people, and not the one who is constantly flattering them into the belief that they are capable of something that they are not capable of, end quote, by which he means that most of the masses simply aren't qualified to weigh in on complex constitutional questions. He's basically saying the progressive demagogues, not that he's using the term demagogues, but it's what he's kind of implying, the progressives simply tell the masses what they want to hear and flatter them into thinking that they have the judicial expertise to correct a judge in some ruling on a constitutional question. In the closing paragraph of the speech, Taft said, quote, What we are striving for is not equality of condition. It is the socialists that want to force that division of property that they think it is possible to maintain and still have a motive for effort in the community. We disagree with them. We believe that if you take away the right of property, you cannot substitute anything to take its place. We do not believe that you can substitute anything for private property that will elevate human nature to what it is. End quote. In another speech later that same month, Taft argued in favor of his approach to the trust issue which was what he had done during his term as president, namely to enforce existing laws, particularly the Sherman Act, as fairly as possible across the board against businesses that seem to be running afoul of American antitrust laws. He also pointed out that some progressives, clearly meaning TR, though he doesn't mention him by name in the speech, 
some progressives who had initially been supporters of antitrust law being used to break up trusts were now changing their tune and saying that existing antitrust policies were a problem because they targeted both quote-unquote good and quote-unquote bad trusts equally simply for being large companies and that this would harm the country's economy because it might mean breaking up giant corporations that aren't doing anything to harm the public and are just really efficient. To which Taft replies in the speech by pointing out that the antitrust laws were, quote, there for enforcement under the oath which I had taken as president of the United States, and yet I was greeted from every part of the country with the statement, you are destroying business, end quote. But Taft says, quote, I was merely trying to carry out the promise I made in the last campaign and the oath I had taken, end quote. So again, he's taking the legalist constitutionalist view of the presidency, which is that it's the executive branch. It's there to carry out and enforce the laws that have been passed by the legislature as fairly and efficiently as possible. And Taft is arguing, look, that's what I was doing in regard to the antitrust laws. He then goes on in the speech to acknowledge that there might be a need to add or to modify U.S. antitrust laws in order to clarify things a bit more and make it easier for businesses to always be able to know ahead of time whether or not they were in danger of running afoul of the law. But he stuck to the overall paradigm of having antitrust laws on the books and having them enforced as impartially as possible and allowing the judicial system to be the main way to handle the trust question and decide if and when a particular trust needs to be broken up. Around the same time, in private letters, Taft reiterated his concerns about TR's increasing radicalism. Writing to his brother in March of 1912, Taft said of TR, quote, If he defeats me, meaning for the Republican Party nomination, it means a campaign in which there will be a race of extreme radicalism by both candidates and the chance of the conservatives to rally round anyone who will defend the policies that they would naturally uphold will have disappeared, end quote. So basically, he could see that the Democratic Party, which had been significantly impacted first by populism and now increasingly by progressivism, was going in that direction. And that therefore, if TR got the Republican nomination, the general election would come down to a contest between two progressives with only slight differences between them, and each of which would be essentially competing to be the most radical progressive. And Taft didn't want this to happen. He didn't want the voters to be without a more conservative choice in the election, and he didn't want to see the Republican Party pulled in a much more radically progressive direction. Again, he seems to have been fine with the more moderate or even conservative progressivism that TR had been more characterized by during his time in the White House, but not where he had been going since then. And in another letter to a friend that same month, Taft elaborated on the same idea, writing, quote, the truth is that the crisis is on now from this time until the convention, the real crisis for conservative men. If Colonel Roosevelt is nominated, we shall have at the head of the Republican ticket an ultra-radical. This will lead the Democrats to nominate a radical as well, and the campaign will be a chase to see which can put his flag on the most extreme battlement of radicalism. 
it will disrupt the Republican Party, and there is no knowing when it will get together again for the purpose of reasserting its proper position in the government, which is that of progressive conservatism. I am not quite sure which would be the more disastrous in case of Roosevelt's nomination, the election of a Democrat or of a Republican. On the other hand, if I were nominated, even though I were to go down to defeat, meaning in the general election, I should be on a conservative platform and should rally the conservative forces of this country and keep them in a nucleus of party strength so that after four years, the party could gather itself together and probably reestablish itself in control, end quote. So Taft, looking more at the big picture and the longer term, is saying, Better to have a conservative party that loses, but is then able to potentially make a comeback in the next election, than to just have an election between two different variations of progressivism. Taft then goes on in the letter to lament the degree to which his relationship with TR had gotten so negative. Again, Taft really was a guy who tried to be a gentleman to everybody, unlike T.R., and as far as I'm aware, Taft never reciprocated T.R.'s nasty, personal, insulting attacks. In this letter, Taft calls the campaign between him and T.R., quote, a very hard and sad one for me, end quote, and he talks about his previous admiration for T.R. as a person, and his gratitude to T.R. for helping Taft get elected president in 1908. And he writes, quote, it is hard for me now to be in opposition to him and feel that he is in bitter opposition to me. I do not mean to lend myself in any way to a personal controversy with him, but of course it will be impossible to keep our respective followers from using language that will irritate and embitter." End quote. At a speech in Maryland in May, Taft said, quote, I would not be out here arguing this question if it concerned my personal ambition only and my personal reputation. I might get along without office, end quote. But, he says, he's campaigning for, quote, the cause of constitutional government, end quote. In particular, again, he was worried about what he saw as T.R. and many of the progressives' assault on the judicial branch. Taft continues, quote, now I submit to you, you would not like to have your rights and guarantees in the Constitution submitted to a vote that may be determined one way or the other according as it is a Democratic or Republican year, end quote. So, obviously he's saying, and this is a fair point, I think, that an individual's constitutional rights shouldn't be up for a vote. Then, later on in the speech, he specifically zeroed in on T.R.'s relationship to the trusts and the trust question, saying, quote, What I attempted to do in my administration was carry out Mr. Roosevelt's policies, and one of those policies I thought to be the prosecution of trusts under the antitrust law. And so I gave orders to the Attorney General to prosecute every trust that he found violating the law. And the only difference between me and Mr. Roosevelt is that I prosecuted the Steel Trust and the Harvester Trust, and he did not, end quote. Pointing out two prominent antitrust cases in the Taft administration that he had pursued against J.P. Morgan-connected companies, namely U.S. Steel and International Harvester, two companies that T.R. as president had refused to prosecute under antitrust law, saying they were good trusts. 
And I'm sure the fact that they were a couple of very important J.P. Morgan trusts had nothing to do with T.R.'s decision to not prosecute them. But for some reason, T.R. got royally pissed at Taft when Taft instead, when he became president, decided, no, I'm going to go after those companies under antitrust law. However, as Taft notes just a little ways further on in the speech, he, Taft, also pursued the antitrust suit against Rockefeller Standard Oil, which I believe had begun under T.R., but Taft continued to see it through. This, even though Taft was basically from the Rockefeller side of the ongoing Rockefeller versus Morgan conflict that was taking place in the American economy and political system at the time. But the point is, Taft was at least taking the appearance of independence seriously enough that he would still continue to go after Standard Oil, which was the heart of the Rockefeller empire. So, going into the Republican Party's National Convention, which took place in Chicago from June 18th to June 22nd, at first glance, the Republicans might seem to have some solid advantages going into this. They had an incumbent president, that of course being Taft, and this was the era of the so-called Fourth Party System, which is generally dated as lasting from 1896 to 1932. And during this era of American politics, the Republicans tended to be dominant almost everywhere in the country, other than the South and a few pockets of the West. And so as a result, the Republicans tend to win the White House during this period almost just kind of by default, and often by very wide margins. In fact, plot spoiler, Woodrow Wilson is the only Democrat to be elected president during the entire Fourth Party System era. And as you probably already know, and as you'll definitely know by the end of this episode, he's only going to win due to the unusual monkey wrench of Teddy Roosevelt running on a third party ticket. Now, like I mentioned earlier, in the Republican primaries, La Follette had won a couple of early ones, but faded quickly after that. Taft initially was looking pretty good in the primaries, and he even won the primary that was held in Teddy Roosevelt's home state of New York, and by a wide margin. However, T.R. then stepped up his game in March, began campaigning harder, and basically announced an ultimatum, saying that if he didn't win the Republican primary, he would still run in the general election as an independent. And this, combined with his charisma and lingering popularity in the party, and the general receptiveness of many voters to progressive rhetoric in this election, and the fact that La Follette, who had been in many ways the standard bearer of progressivism in the party, was basically fading out, meant that as things moved along from those first few primaries, ultimately TR was going to gather a bunch of steam. And in fact, he won pretty overwhelmingly in most of the rest of the Republican primaries that were held in 1912. Even, by the way, winning Taft's home state of Ohio, which was a victory that no doubt felt to T.R., like revenge for Taft having won New York earlier. All told, 13 states held Republican primaries in 1912, and T.R. ended up winning nine of them, with La Follette and Taft each winning two. But at this exact moment in American politics, it was really a transitional phase between the old-school, proverbial smoke-filled rooms, right, where the nominations were made by party elites on the one hand, and the popular primary system we're more familiar with in our time on the other. So it's kind of like part way 
in that transition to primaries. So still as of 1912, more delegates were not chosen by state primaries than were chosen by them, which meant that TR's domination of most of the primaries didn't necessarily ensure that he'd get the delegates to get their Republican nomination, because most states in 1912 were still selecting their delegates to national party conventions by holding state party conventions rather than by holding popular primaries. And obviously, the former method is going to favor having clout with party insiders and party establishment types, while the latter is going to favor having appeal to the rank-and-file masses of party membership. So going into the convention, it seemed like perhaps TR and Taft might end up being very evenly matched overall, and the nomination would be a close-run thing, highly contested. The idea being, with TR dominating the primaries and Taft probably dominating the party establishment types, you know, who would comprise the delegates from states that didn't hold primaries, maybe it'd be a very close thing. Now, in light of this possibility, as the convention was about to begin, apparently Taft himself, who, again, whose main goal was, as I mentioned before, more than anything else, simply to block TR from getting the Republican Party's nomination. Taft suggested a compromise candidate in the form of a man named Herbert Hadley, who at the time was governor of Missouri and who, I confess, I know virtually nothing about. But presumably, he was more conservative or at the very least more of a moderate progressive than Teddy Roosevelt, and therefore Taft saw him as a possible compromise candidate. However, T.R. and his people rejected the option of nominating Hadley. So it ultimately would be a Taft versus T.R. showdown. When the convention met, T.R. broke with tradition by personally attending it. The norm up through this time was for contenders for a party nomination to not attend the actual convention and to sort of at least pretend like they were not deliberately seeking the nomination and deliberately seeking office. The game was always to appear like you were the reluctant candidate simply doing your duty because the public demands it. And so, for example, in 1912, both Wilson and Taft do not attend their party's nomination convention, as was tradition. By the way, same thing is even true of Eugene Debs with the Socialist Party convention. Debs doesn't attend it in person. But T.R. never had much problem with breaking tradition and breaking precedent. And he knew he was the more personally charismatic candidate than Taft by far, with a much more passionate following. And he was obviously trying to leverage all of that and his kind of celebrity status to clinch the nomination. Now, the key to Taft's strategy to try to still retain the nomination was the Republican Party's Southern delegations, many of whom at the time were African-Americans. Now, at this time, the South was still very much the quote-unquote solid South, meaning that the overwhelming majority of white voters were Democrats, and black voters, who at the time were more likely to be Republican than Democrat, being in various ways disenfranchised throughout much of the South, despite what the 14th and 15th Amendments would indicate. Now, all of this meant that the Republicans were extremely unlikely to win any electoral college votes from the Southern states during a general election and also that the Republicans would hardly ever win any state or local elections in the South either. 
you could then argue that the Republican delegations were kind of like empty boroughs or rotten boroughs in the sense that Southern Republican delegates had a significant say on who the party nominated, but then they would contribute little to nothing to getting that nominee elected in the general, you know, national election. This also meant that Southern Republicans relied heavily on the National Republican Party using the federal patronage in order to get them things like government offices and government jobs. Taft was ultimately able to successfully leverage the loyalty of these Southern Republicans in order to get enough delegates to hang on to the nomination. Ironically, Teddy Roosevelt himself had just used this exact strategy four years earlier in 1908 in order to help Taft get the nomination. Now, T.R. cried foul at Taft using the exact same strategy to hang on to the nomination. Now, in the face of this, T.R.'s strategy became to question the legitimacy of about half of Taft's delegates to claim on various grounds that they were not legit. The men, though, who were on the committee that would adjudicate this dispute at the convention were men who had been selected by Taft, who was the incumbent president of that party, after all. And ultimately, in all but a handful of cases, the commission sided with Taft and against T.R.'s challenges to the delegates. At this, T.R. and his supporters cried foul. Now, to be fair, it's likely that there was plenty of shady stuff going on in both camps, because that's how party conventions were done at the time. Unlike in our time, when things are decided long before the convention actually meets, which means that the way they do it now, all the shady moves and deals and whatnot have already happened a long time ago, well before the convention meets. And the convention ends up being just sort of pageantry and rubber stamping. But back a 100 plus years ago, the nomination sausage was mostly still made at the convention rather than before it, in other words. Anyway, the net result of all of this was that Taft was nominated by the Republican Party convention on the first ballot when the convention opened. And the Republicans, unlike the Democrats, whom we'll cover next, the Republicans' party rules said that in order to get the nomination for president, all you needed was a simple majority of delegates. The Democrats are going to require a supermajority. In response to Taft getting the nomination on the first ballot, T.R. and the majority of his delegates said, screw you guys, I'm going home, and they walked out on the convention and the party, and they quickly began slapping together what would become the Progressive Party for T.R. to run in the general election. That party would hold its convention in August, also in Chicago, and in fact at the exact same venue the Republicans had met at, which was the Chicago Coliseum. But in between, before the Progressive Party convention would meet, the Democrats would hold their national convention and nominate their presidential candidate. So the Democratic National Convention in 1912 met in Baltimore from June 25th through July 2nd. Now, a little bit about the lead up to this. Ironically, for a guy who frequently called for making things more democratic, including having more popular primaries... Woodrow Wilson actually didn't do well in the Democratic primaries that were held in 1912, and had the party's nomination depended only or even mostly on primary votes, Wilson probably wouldn't have gotten the nomination. And in fact, going into the convention, probably most political kind of horse race 
observers at the time wouldn't have guessed that Wilson was likely to win. That said, he did have some pluses in his column. He did have the support of many of the most important Democratic Party newspapers, although notably not the Hearst papers. Hearst did not like Wilson. And Wilson also had a lot of support from Protestant clergy in many parts of the country, as well as from lots of people who worked in education and academia. And these are all powerful things in molding people's opinions and influencing people's views. Also, as John Milton Cooper points out in his biography of Wilson, quote, Most important, Wilson had a strong, well-financed organization behind him. His wealthy Princeton friends contributed $85,000, of which 51000 came from Cleveland Dodge, while other big donors chipped in an additional 65000 Moreover, Bryan declined to endorse Clark. That's a reference to Champ Clark, Speaker of the House. We're on him in a moment. Back to Cooper. And some people thought he might try to exploit a deadlocked convention to gain another nomination for himself, end quote, referring to Bryan. By the way, adjusted into current dollar values, these sums in the tens of thousands of dollars in 1912 that I just mentioned would be millions of dollars in today's money. Now, Wilson's biggest obstacle to the nomination would be Democratic Congressman and Speaker of the House, James Beauchamp Clark, better known as Champ Clark of Missouri, who, aside from being Speaker of the House and a longtime prominent populist, also had the backing of William Randolph Hearst. But in addition to Champ Clark, Wilson also faced House Majority Leader Oscar Underwood from Alabama. Now, Underwood, from what I know about him, which isn't a ton, he seems to have been more of an old-school Southern conservative Democrat than either the populist Clark or the progressive Wilson. So he tended to pick up votes from more conservative Democrats, especially Southerners. At the convention, Wilson would do a bit less well than he had expected and hoped amongst Southerners, as populist-leaning Southern Democrats tended to go towards Clark, and more conservative traditional Southern Democrats tended to prefer Underwood, kind of leaving Wilson out of the lurch with a lot of Southern delegations. At this time, the Democratic Party's rules still required a two-thirds supermajority delegate vote in order to win the party's nomination. Wilson, as a political scientist, had actually opposed this rule. But ironically, this rule was largely responsible for Wilson ultimately getting the nomination. By contrast, as I mentioned earlier, the Republicans only required a simple majority of delegates to get the nomination. And had the Democrats had that same rule, Champ Clark would have been nominated, rather than Woodrow Wilson. Now, heading into the convention, Clark was ahead in pledge delegates with 436. Wilson was in second with 248, and Underwood had 84. A handful of other candidates held a few delegates apiece. But to get the two-thirds required to get the nomination, a candidate would have to cobble together 729 delegate votes. As the convention was meeting in Baltimore, Wilson was with his family at the governor's summer house in Seagirt, New Jersey. Again, trying to play the role of the reluctant candidate that was sort of expected back then, you know, sort of pretending that you were above the fray and you're just passively waiting to see if you get tapped or not. Which, again, was still the normal thing for presidential hopefuls to do. 
Wilson seems to have, for a while, leading up to the convention, have believed his own facade of being the reluctant candidate and, you know, not really wanting this and that sort of thing. He even wrote to his pen pal, Mrs. Peck, a few weeks before the convention would meet, quote, I have not the least idea of being nominated, because the make of the convention is such the balance and confusion of forces that the outcome is in the hands of the professional case-hardened politicians who serve only their own interests, and who know that I will not serve them, except as I might serve the party in general. I have no deep stakes involved in this game. End quote. William Jennings Bryan, the populist Democrat from Nebraska, the three-time Democratic presidential nominee and also three-time loser, but who still had huge sway within the party, would ultimately be the kingmaker in this scenario. He, of course, wanted to see the Democratic Party continue to move in a more populist and or progressive direction, and this meant that he wanted to see the conservative, bourbon, kind of pro-business forces within the party, which at the time were sort of led by a number of key people, but perhaps most prominently Judge Alton Parker of New York, who at the time was angling to become party chairman. Brian wanted to see Parker and all of those types of Democrats defeated. But the question was, which progressive or populist alternative would Brian back? And as of the convention beginning to meet, he had made no official endorsements of any candidate. Just prior to the Democratic convention, while the Republicans were actually still meeting at theirs, Brian had cabled the main Democratic contenders and had asked them their position on Alton Parker becoming chairman of the party. The more conservative candidates, such as Underwood, were supportive of Parker. Champ Clark, for his part, gave a non-committal response, really trying to hedge his bets and play the politician. But Wilson, actually against the advice of some of his advisors, decided to respond strongly against the idea of Parker as party chairman. Now, ultimately, Parker would end up winning the party chairmanship, not that that really mattered much in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that Wilson's answer to Brian's question about Parker was the only answer that really said what Brian wanted to hear was important. This, combined with the earlier rapprochement between Brian and Wilson that we mentioned in the last episode in the Wilson series, did a lot to nudge Brian toward supporting Wilson. When the 20,000 Democratic Party activists, politicians, and delegates met in Baltimore, On the first ballot that they held for president, Champ Clark came in first place, with 440 delegates to Wilson's 324. And the other candidates in the field were distantly behind. Several days and several dozen more ballots resulted in Wilson's total gradually creeping up, but with no one clinching the necessary two-thirds majority. Clark actually was able to get a simple majority of delegates on the 10th ballot after New York's conservative Tammany Hall delegation began to support him. And again, if this had been the Republican convention where just a simple majority was required to get the nomination, it would have been over for Wilson at that point, and Clark would have been nominated. But since the Democrats required two-thirds, it kept going. William McCombs, who was at the convention, kept Wilson informed on the convention's progress over the telephone. 
Gradually, as the convention dragged on, McCombs became increasingly pessimistic about Wilson's chances. But another key advisor and confidant, William Gibbs McAdoo, disagreed. McAdoo argued that Clark was basically peaked, and that now the momentum was beginning to shift more and more towards Wilson. McAdoo was a very important player for Wilson at the convention, in many ways his most important surrogate. Tirelessly working behind the scenes to gather support for Wilson from various delegations, including, among other things, getting Indiana's support by letting their delegates know that Thomas Marshall, who at the time I believe was governor of Indiana, would be Wilson's running mate if Wilson were nominated. McAdoo also, and somewhat mysteriously in the case of this, somehow persuaded Roger Sullivan, a powerful Democratic Party boss from Chicago, to move a bunch of Illinois delegates from Clark to Wilson. And it is still not known what exactly McAdoo told Sullivan or promised Sullivan or bribed Sullivan or whatever, what exactly he he did or told Sullivan to bring about this move. And Wilson had other diehard supporters within the party convention as well, who were willing to work very hard on Wilson's behalf. One was a 30-year-old rising star within the party, then first-term state senator of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was doing everything he could to help Wilson's progress. Young FDR had formed a Woodrow Wilson club of delegates prior to the convention, but they had been blocked from participating when they showed up, allegedly for lacking proper credentials. But FDR discovered that the mayor of Baltimore, who was a Champ Clark supporter, was using shady means to basically pack the convention for Clark as much as he could. Basically, in many cases, the so-called credentials that were getting delegates into the convention turned out to be specific campaign buttons for Clark that you know, the people in charge of who's allowed in the convention or not were kind of using these special Clark buttons as like the password or the secret handshake that determined whether or not they would admit you to the convention. Now, it just so happened that FDR had some sort of a contact at the company that was making these special buttons. And so he was able to arrange to get a bunch of these Champ Clark buttons for his group of Woodrow Wilson supporters. And basically, by wearing these buttons and showing up with them, he managed to get himself and his New York Woodrow Wilson club into the convention after all. Now, on the 30th ballot, Wilson pulled ahead of Clark for the first time, but he was still short of the two-thirds needed to win. Ultimately, the deciding factor, as many people had expected, turned out to be William Jennings Bryan. When, after all of these ballots, he finally got off the fence officially and decided to officially back Wilson instead of Clark. Basically, what had happened to nudge Bryan that last bit was when the Wall Street-connected, largely bourbon Tammany Hall group had started to back Champ Clark. This had turned Brian off decisively from Clark once and for all, and Brian telephoned Wilson to basically nudge Wilson to declare that he, Wilson, would not accept any Wall Street help in getting the nomination. Now, my understanding of Wilson's response is that basically Wilson told Brian that he was in agreement with the sentiment, but that he wouldn't say so publicly for the time being. 
But even this somewhat cowardly response of, oh, yeah, I don't want Wall Street support, but I'm not going to publicly say I don't want Wall Street support, basically, right? Even that was enough, though, to make Brian much more favorably disposed towards Wilson than towards Clark, who, in Brian's eyes, seemed to be just wholeheartedly embracing the bourbon-slash-Wall Street forces. And so at this point, Brian began to officially support Wilson and to urge his many supporters in the Democratic Party to do the same. So on Tuesday, July 2nd, on the 46th ballot, Wilson won a total of 990 delegate votes, more than enough to clinch the party nomination. When the news reached Seagirt, Joseph Tumulty, who was there, ran outside, yelling and waving his hands, which turned out to be a signal because at that point a brass band came out from hiding behind some trees and immediately started playing Hail to the Chief, to Governor Wilson's surprise. Practically everyone at Seagirt, at the governor's house, was happy and celebrating, except we're told for Wilson himself, who remained at least outwardly calm. Wilson, again, following the kind of precedent of the time, did not go in person to the Baltimore Convention to give some sort of acceptance speech that still was mostly not done at national conventions, and instead, he began composing an acceptance speech to officially launch his general election campaign in early August, which is when the Democratic Party's notification committee would officially announce the nomination. Wilson actually left Seagirt to spend six days with his family on Cleveland Dodge's yacht as he composed his speech. When he returned to Seagirt from being on Cleveland Dodge's yacht, Wilson replaced McCombs with McAdoo as his top campaign advisor, although McCombs remained chairman of the Democratic National Party and did still work to try to help Wilson get reelected in the general campaign. McAdoo proved to be a better campaign manager and advisor than McCombs had been, and he also brought in other talented people to help, including a newspaper publisher from North Carolina named Josephus Daniels, who would later, like McAdoo himself, end up in Wilson's cabinet. On August 7, 1912, the exact same day on which T.R. would be nominated by the Progressive Party up in Chicago, Wilson spoke from the governor's summer home at Seagirt and formally accepted the Democratic Party's nomination for president and officially kicked off his general election campaign. And I just have to say as a side note, isn't this great that a presidential general election campaign doesn't kick off really until August? Unlike now, where presidential campaigns seem to be virtually perpetual in the United States. Anyway, in this speech, Wilson said, quote, I accept the nomination with a deep sense of its unusual significance and of the great honor done me, and also with a very profound sense of my responsibility to the party and to the nation. We must speak, not to catch votes, but to satisfy the thought and conscience of a people deeply stirred by the conviction that they have come to a crucial turning point in their moral and political development. It is a new age, end quote. And then a little later on in the speech, clearly speaking about T.R. and his cult of personality without mentioning him by name, Wilson said, quote, There is no indispensable man. The government will not collapse and go to pieces if any one of the gentlemen who are seeking to be entrusted with its guidance should be left at home, end quote. 
The Progressive Party's convention was held in Chicago from August 5th through the 7th of 1912. And again, at the exact same venue, the Chicago Coliseum, where the Republican Party had met earlier in the summer. Though, of course, the Progressive Convention was not a divided or hard-fought affair. It was basically slapped together from the get-go for the purpose of running TR for president. So TR basically just had to kind of like show up and walk on, and he'd get the nomination. Hiram Johnson, the progressive governor of California, was made chairman of the Progressive Party, and he would also end up being TR's running mate in the campaign. Now, to be sure, in terms of rank-and-file supporters, the party contained lots of idealistic, usually very pietistically religious, grassroots activists of various sorts. But at the same time, it was also backed by certain key members of the U.S. corporate elite of the time, too. To me, the two biggest reasons why this particular third party, which only really even exists for just a couple of election cycles, makes such a big splash and comes in second place in 1912, are first, of course, that their candidate for president was a still hugely popular, charismatic, recent ex-president in the form of T.R., But the other main reason that this party makes such an abnormally large splash during the 1912 election is money and backing and support from certain wealthy elite donors. And the two biggest contributors to the party were Frank Munsey and George W. Perkins, each of whom gave around $130,000 to the party, which works out to over $3 million in today's money when you adjust for inflation. Now, in case you don't know who these two guys were, Frank Munsey was a major New York-based newspaper and magazine publisher and an ardent progressive. And then, perhaps even more importantly, you have George W. Perkins, who was literally a business partner of J.P. Morgan. And Perkins had been one of the biggest backers of T.R.'s political career ever since T.R. was governor of New York. Perkins was an important part of getting T.R. the VP slot in 1900 and then became a major advisor to him throughout his time in the White House. Arguably, he was the most important corporate supporter of T.R. throughout his entire political career, and Perkins also seems to have served as a go-between between T.R. and J.P. Morgan himself during T.R.'s time in the White House. Perkins was really one of Morgan's top sidekicks in his financial empire, and as such, Perkins held such important posts as partner in J.P. Morgan & Company, vice president of the New York Life Insurance Company, and he was also a director of U.S. Steel, which was a company that he'd been the key player in creating when Morgan bought out Carnegie Steel and then some other steel companies and merged them together to create this giant U.S. Steel. And Perkins was also chairman of the International Harvester Corporation, which, like U.S. Steel, was a mega corporation created by J.P. Morgan through the strategy of mergers in an attempt to create sort of a quasi-monopoly. Interestingly, I'll point out, both U.S. Steel and International Harvester, these Morgan companies that Perkins was personally involved with running, were two of the companies that the Taft administration had gone after with antitrust suits that TR had previously said were good trusts. And so 
Taft going after those two companies was the thing that had pissed off TR and got him out of retirement more than anything else. So Perkins is literally funding TR's campaign against the guy, Taft, who had gone after two companies that Perkins himself was personally involved with running. And of course, ideologically, Perkins was, like TR himself, an ardent, pro-corporate progressive. He was a major influence, though not the only one, on TR's thinking and policy statements in regard to the trust question. And Perkins would also serve as the executive secretary of the Progressive Party. Now, in addition to major contributions from Munsey and Perkins, TR's family gave another $77,000 to the party, which is, in today's dollars, another couple million bucks, and various other donors gave smaller amounts than that. Altogether, the party raised a total of almost $600,000 in 1912 dollars to spend on the campaign. Now, it's true, this is significantly less than the two major parties raised in this election, but... That said, according to Inflation Calculator, that's still a total of over $15 million in today's dollars. Now, compared to major party spending in 2020, even adjusted for inflation, that's pretty low, since the Republican and Democratic parties have each raised and spent money in the billions for at least the last few presidential elections, if not longer than that. But let's compare apples to apples a little bit. In 2020, the Joe Jorgensen Libertarian Campaign for President raised a bit over $3 million, and as far as I know, that's the best of any minor party candidate in this election cycle. All of which means that TR's progressive campaign in 1912 raised and spent about five times as much in inflation-adjusted dollars, as did the third-largest presidential campaign in the 2020 election, So the Progressive Party was a distant third in funding, but it was still doing way better than a third-party candidate typically does in terms of fundraising, especially a party that was, remember, just founded in 1912, the summer before the election. And it shows you how important the backing from key figures in corporate America was to the Progressive Party making such a big splash. It also, by the way, just as a side note, shows that the idea that big businesses and corporate America and all those sort of people really truly want free market economic policies is crap. Because aside from the fact that corporate America gives massive amounts of money to the major parties all the time, regardless of how anti-free market their policies are, just looking at when corporate America does occasionally decide to back a non, you know, big two party candidate, as far as I'm aware, the biggest third-party candidate in American history, not just in terms of votes gotten and electoral votes won, but in terms of corporate funding, is TR's Progressive Party. A big government, hyper-statist, virtually socialist party, like borderline socialist party. That is the minor party that's gotten, over the course of American history, that earned more corporate money than any libertarian candidate ever has. So it's pretty clear that corporate America typically wants the government to do a lot of things, but implementing genuine free market policies is not on that list. Anyway, TR had already broken sort of tradition and precedent by attending the Republican convention earlier in the summer in person. And then he also would, of course, not surprisingly, then personally attend the progressive convention. And he broke precedent still further by speaking there in person. 
And he called his speech just showing the pietism that was just laced throughout and dripping off of progressivism version 1.0. He called his speech his confession of faith. In the speech, T.R. harped on the progressive idea that there is actually such a thing as the common good or general welfare or whatever you want to call it, and that this common good needs to always take precedence over any individual or corporate or subgroup's good or interests. T.R. spoke in this speech a lot about using the state to try to help out the working class in a paternalistic way, saying things like, quote, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizen live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the common welfare. We must protect the crushable elements at the base of our present industrial structure. End quote. Yet he somehow thought that using the Leviathan state in order to paternalistically help the common man would somehow result in the common man becoming more independent rather than more dependent. T.R. said, quote, Ultimately, we desire to use the government to aid, as far as can safely be done, in helping the industrial tool users to become, in part, tool owners, just as our farmers now are. End quote. And this is another issue I have with progressivism, of many, aside from the fact that I don't believe that there really is ever such a thing as the common good, the general welfare, etc., but aside from the fact I don't believe that the common good general welfare even exists or could ever be divined, I object to the most of the time implicit, but sometimes explicitly stated, belief on the part of many progressives that making the common man much more dependent on a massive Leviathan state will somehow result in the common man being empowered which just seems like an absolutely ludicrous theory to me. I mean, it makes no sense in theory, right, that if you get someone more dependent on a powerful institution, that makes the person somehow end up being empowered and more personally independent and whatever. I mean, we're basically at underpants gnome territory here, right, where it's like step one, collect underpants. Step two, dot, dot, dot. Step three, profit. It's like, okay, step one, get the common man more dependent on the state. Step two, dot, dot, dot. Step three, common man is more empowered. Anyway, TR then went on in the speech to advocate for various measures like minimum wage standards, better safety standards for workers, workers' comp sort of programs, and a quote-unquote living wage. He advocated for banning women and children from being able to work at night, and advocated banning women and children from being able to work more than 48 hours per week total. Although these latter restrictions, he did not want to apply to adult men. Again, it's all very paternalistic. T.R. argued that massive government intervention into the economy need not do anything to actually hamper overall prosperity. Quote, our aim is to promote prosperity and then see to its proper division. We do not believe that any good comes to anyone by a policy which means destruction of prosperity. For in such cases, it is not possible to divide it because of the very obvious fact that there is nothing to divide. 
We wish to control big business so as to secure, among other things, good wages for the wage workers and reasonable prices for the consumers. End quote. Okay, how would you objectively define good wages and reasonable prices? Who gets to decide what that is and how it's defined? It is kind of interesting, though, that he's saying, yeah, we can't redistribute the loot if we prevent the loot from being made in the first place, right? But he actually seems to think that you can have massive amounts of government intervention into the economy and even control of various parts of it without, whether you intend it to or not, having at least some amount of side effect that amounts to reducing the overall wealth and productivity of the economy as a whole. As if there's not going to be, you know, all kinds of first and second order unintended side effects when you start monkeying around with the economy a lot. It's the arrogance, right, to think you can just go in and start, you know, messing with wages and prices and messing with the economy in various ways, and it's not going to produce any side effects or ripple effects other than you're just, you know, changing stuff. Right, the things that you're doing are just going to happen, and there'll be no unintended side effects or consequences of the interventions. TR then goes on in the speech to cite a book titled Concentration and Control, which was written by a professor named Charles Van Heys of the University of Wisconsin, a book which argued that approaching the trust issue by just trying to break up the trusts was not a good idea, because, Van Heys argued, giant corporations were simply an inevitable outcome of industrial progress that promoted efficiency. So, T.R. summarizes Van Heys's work by saying that Van Heys shows that laissez-faire competition is wasteful and inefficient, and that therefore what is needed is not a lawsuit-focused antitrust approach that seeks mainly to just break up the largest companies, but instead a continuous government regulation of large corporations. Let them stay big, but just have the government regulate them. So TR then goes on to call for creating a regulatory agency like the Interstate Commerce Commission, but for industry in general rather than just for regulating railroads, as was the main thing being done by the ICC at the time. So in contrast to William Howard Taft, who favored continuing the antitrust approach centered around the Sherman Antitrust Act and the judicial system to deal with the issue, TR says that, quote, the regulation should be primarily under the administrative branch of government and not by lawsuit, end quote. TR then goes on to advocate for a bizarre sort of compulsory form of counterfeit voluntarism, whereby corporations who voluntarily submit themselves to this federal regulation would then be shielded from antitrust suits, whereas corporations that chose not to submit to the regulatory agency might be liable to antitrust prosecution for any alleged misdeeds. He summarized his overall view on the trust question by saying, quote, We favor cooperation in business and ask only that it be carried on in a spirit of honesty and fairness. We are against crooked business, big or little. We are in favor of honest business, big or little. We propose to penalize conduct and not size. But all very big business, even though honestly conducted, is fraught with such potentiality of menace that there should be thoroughgoing government control over it so that its efficiency 
in promoting prosperity at home and increasing the power of the nation in international commerce may be maintained, and at the same time, fair play ensured to the wage workers, the small business competitors, the investors, and the general public. And of course, TR simply truly believes that the state actually is, if it's in the right hands, capable of defining in practice such vague and subjective terms as honest and fair, and then balancing and harmonizing all of these different interests of a giant nation together to bring about the common good. Which to me does take some amount of, nothing else you can call it, religious faith to actually believe that the state can do this. And in progressivism of back then, you didn't really have to scratch the surface very far to find devout religiosity. And T.R. understood this. He wasn't super religious himself, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not a complete expert on T.R., but I've read several different biographies of him and stuff like that, and I don't get the sense that he was anywhere near as devout as a lot of his followers were. But he knew that. He knew that his followers were that way, and so he would pander to them, in a way that's kind of reminiscent of Lincoln, who was personally not very religious and who, some historians have argued, might have even been an atheist but who would speak in religious and biblical terminology and whatever because he knew who his audience was. So T.R. ended his speech to the Progressive Party Convention with the same line that he had used at the end of his speech at the Republican Convention, when he had been speaking to his followers after they made the decision to leave the convention. And that line is, We stand at Armageddon, and we battle for the Lord. After that closing line, supporters began to sing hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers and Battle Hymn of the Republic, and many of them, we are told, replaced references to Jesus in these songs with the name Roosevelt. It doesn't get a whole lot more on the nose than that, does it? Civil religion is a hell of a drug. So anyway, I don't want to turn this episode just into a study of the Progressive Party, but It definitely was an interesting amalgamation of various groups and individuals, not all of which really made sense to fit together, but of course, national political parties, particularly in a large nation like the United States, always end up containing some element of strange bedfellows, some amount of factions that are allied together in ways that don't always really make any rational sense. But it is interesting to look at this party, short-lived as it was, in terms of its rhetoric, in terms of its symbols, in terms of who was involved with it, etc. And you find some interesting things, like, for example, one can actually find Progressive Party candidates, including T.R. himself, occasionally using the term that we all know and love today, social justice. Although it's pretty clear that they didn't always take that term to mean the same exact things that people do in our own time. Now, they would agree with today's social justice crowd on the overall idea of using state power to try and reduce wealth inequality generally. But of course, progressives of a hundred years ago were nowhere near as fixated on issues like race, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth. I mean, some individuals were involved with those issues. But progressivism as a whole, those just weren't the centerpieces of progressivism version 1.0. And it's pretty clear as soon as you start looking into this party and just progressives generally, even if they were Republicans or Democrats during this time period, 
you quickly realize that many, perhaps even most of them, were still quite conservative and conventional on what we would think of as sort of social issues. You're not going to find very many early 20th century progressives, for example, talking about things like gay rights or trans rights or whatever like that, okay? So it's pretty clear when they say social social justice, vaguely they kind of mean some of the same things that the term means to today's progressives, but in other ways, it's not the same. The Progressive Party and its candidates seemingly like to dance around near the borders of outright socialism, but never quite go all the way to it, largely because their corporatism held them back generally from advocating for outright nationalization of the means of production. In most instances, they just wanted increased regulation and intervention and welfare state-type measures. But they like to sort of flirt with some of the language and symbols and things of socialism. So, for example, during this time period, Progressive Party supporters would sometimes wave red handkerchiefs, which at the time were a widely recognized symbol of socialism, at speeches and rallies and that sort of thing. And in fact, when T.R.'s supporters started singing Onward Christian Soldiers after his nomination speech, T.R. himself pulled out a red handkerchief and waved it like he was a conductor leading them in the songs. So, the Progressive Party's flirtation with full-on socialism is interesting, and no doubt it terrified conservatives in the country at the time. But the fact of the matter is that the Progressive Party as a whole was really just pushing for a kind of paternalistic corporatism with a significant welfare state. By contrast, the actual Socialist Party, which we'll mention a little bit about in a moment, they vehemently rejected the idea that the progressives were socialists, and the socialists pointed out correctly, in my view, that the progressives were, in a lot of ways, really just corporate tools. Historically, the Progressive Party was ahead of the curve in calling for nationwide female voting, and over the course of 1912, T.R. himself was persuaded by a number of prominent progressive women, including Jane Addams, to support giving women the vote throughout the U.S. At the time, women could vote in some states, but not in most states. In 1912, I'm pretty sure that T.R. was the only presidential candidate publicly endorsing nationwide female suffrage, though he didn't really make it like a super big front-and-center type issue. The Progressive Party was more ambivalent on the issue of race. Many individual members and supporters of the party could probably be considered pretty anti-racist by the standards of 1912, but that said, the party as a whole did not take a hard stance on race issues, largely because they wanted to avoid alienating white Southern progressives, many of whom were staunchly racist. The first couple of decades of the 20th century was a time when there actually was a fair amount of overlap, primarily in the South, between progressivism and racism. And I've mentioned this in various places on various DHP episodes, but I think you can really see it embodied in people like Woodrow Wilson himself, as well as many of the men he would put in his cabinet, men like William Gibbs McAdoo, men like Josephus Daniels. These sorts of guys combined ardent, pietistic progressivism with staunch racism, sometimes shading off into outright Klan territory. And occasionally these prejudices would be 
expressed against immigrants and things like this, but the main target was, of course, African Americans. As states were selecting delegations to send to the Progressive Party convention, three southern states, specifically Florida, Georgia, and Mississippi, were divided over whether or not to send racially integrated delegations. And as a result, these three states ended up sending two groups of delegates, one that included some black delegates and another that was all white. And the Progressive Party's Credentials Committee ruled in favor of the all-white delegations from the southern states. Now, there were racially integrated delegations from some of the northern states, so they weren't opposed to black delegates entirely. They didn't oppose them across the board and bar them from participating in the party, but they kind of took a line against black delegates coming from the south. Which looks like pandering to me, but TR tried to give it a little bit more kind of deep explanation and justification. In a letter to a party member explaining the decision to go with the all-white Southern delegations, TR said that it was fine to have black delegates participating from Northern states, but that it would be better not to do so in regard to Southern delegations. TR pointed to the experience of the Republican Party in the South, which was mostly composed of black members. He wrote, quote, For 45 years, the Republican Party has endeavored in these states to build a party in which the Negro should be dominant, a party consisting almost exclusively of Negroes. But in actual practice, the result has been lamentable from every standpoint. It has been productive of evil to the colored men themselves. It has been productive only of evil to the white men of the South, and it has worked the gravest injury to, and finally the disruption and destruction of, the great Republican Party itself. In the states in question, the Republican Party has in actual fact become practically non-existent insofar as votes at the polls are concerned, end quote. Meaning, since most of the party's members in the South were black, and since, for a variety of reasons, it ranged from inconvenient to impossible, or at the very least, hazardous to your health, for black people to actually try and vote in many areas of the South at the time. You end up in a situation where, on paper, there's a fair amount of Republicans in the South, because most black people, if they were at all politically interested or active or involved or whatever at the time, would likely be Republicans. But because of the means, some legal, some extra-legal, of disenfranchising blacks in the South, it meant that it didn't result in much in the way of actual votes on Election Day. T.R. then goes on in this letter to point to the Republican convention that had happened just, you know, a month or two ago that summer, saying that the split in the Republican Party, which T.R. himself had caused, you know, he just blames it on the Southern delegations, as if they just kind of suddenly threw a split into the party. And he kind of de facto portrays himself as just sort of being, you know, passively the recipient of the split within the party rather than the guy who actually caused it to happen in the first place. So TR says, quote, In the convention at Chicago last June, the breakup of the Republican Party was forced by those rotten borough delegates from the South. In the primary states of the North, the colored men in most places voted substantially as their white neighbors voted. 
But in the southern states, where there was no real Republican Party, and where colored men, or whites selected purely by colored men, were sent to the convention, representing nothing but their own greed or money or office, the majority were overwhelmingly anti-progressive. End quote. Now, this dynamic of these southern delegations within the Republican Party and this weird situation where you've got these party delegations representing these states in which the Republicans are going to get virtually no votes, and certainly nowhere near enough votes to potentially win any Southern Electoral College votes at this time. You know, for all of his many years as a major player in the Republican Party, Teddy Roosevelt had not previously thought this was a problem that I'm aware of. I've never come across him saying or writing anything prior to 1912 about how messed up it is that there are these black Republican delegates from the South that don't really represent actual votes in national or even state elections. He seems to have been perfectly fine with that being a thing, and he even used it to help steer the party in various ways. Like, for example, in 1908, he used those Southern delegations to help his, at the time, buddy Taft get the nomination. And he only decides that this is a problem when it goes against him, right? When Taft is able to get those delegates' votes against Teddy Roosevelt. Now, suddenly, this is a problem. T.R. then goes on to argue that these Southern, again, mostly black Republican Party delegations under the influence, I guess, of nefarious anti-progressive Republicans, had ultimately betrayed the party. Which T.R. just sort of assumes was, just by default, going all progressive, up until Taft, backed by these southern delegations, sort of tries to hold it back and hijack it away from evolving in an ever more progressive direction. T.R. says, quote, the loss of instant representation by Southern colored delegates is due to the fact that the sentiment of the Southern Negro collectively has been prostituted by dishonest professional politicians, both white and black, and the machinery does not exist and can never be created as long as present political conditions are continued, which can assure what a future of real justice will undoubtedly develop, namely the right of political expression by the Negro who shows that he possesses the intelligence, integrity, and self-respect which justify such right of political expression in his white neighbor, end quote. So black people need to develop, black people need to show that they have intelligence, integrity, and self-respect in order to win over white citizens, into allowing them full political rights. It's interesting, I've never seen Teddy Roosevelt or somebody like him at this time period saying, for example, that poor white people, who may not be all that educated or literate or whatever at the time, need to show that they have intelligence, integrity, and self-respect in order to have full rights of citizenship, you know, to participate in politics and all that. It's interesting how he only puts these prerequisites to full enfranchisement in regard to black citizens. T.R. continues, quote, I earnestly believe that by appealing to the best white men in the South, the men of justice and of vision as well as of strength and leadership, and by frankly putting the movement in their hands, from the outset, we shall create a situation by which the colored men of the South will ultimately get justice, as it is not possible for them to get justice 
if we are to continue and perpetuate the present conditions. The men to whom we appeal are the men who have stood for securing the colored man in his rights before the law, and they can do for him what neither the northern white man nor the colored men themselves can do. Our only wise course from the standpoint of the colored man himself is to follow the course that we are following toward him in the north and to follow the course we are following toward him in the south, end quote. So basically sounds to me like he's saying the best thing we can do is get the support and participation of white progressive southerners, and then they will gradually bring about conditions in the south that will result in blacks eventually earning and deserving and getting their full political rights. But of course, the problem is that TR is either ignorant of or is turning a blind eye towards the fact that most Southern progressives at this time period, white Southern progressives, were just as racist as any other white Southerner at the time. I mean, I'm sure you could dig through the South at politically active and involved people and maybe find a handful of white Southerners during this time period who were pretty good on, you know, race issues and whatever. But the fact of the matter is, I don't see much evidence that there were very many of them. I mean, if you go back and study progressive politicians in the South from, say, 1900 to 1920, of whatever party, you know, at the state and local level or getting elected to Congress or what have you, it's pretty hard to find any that are not also pretty damn racist. So TR either didn't understand this or is choosing to act like this isn't a thing. Well, according to the historian John Milton Cooper in his biography of Wilson talking about this election, TR really thought that this progressive party was going to win and take over and change American politics in the same way that the Republican Party had with Lincoln in 1860, with the new party becoming one of the major parties. He really seems to have thought that his walking out on the Republican Party in 1912 and taking some of his delegates with him to form the Progressive Party was going to cause the Republican Party to irreparably fall apart, perhaps in the same way that the Whig Party fell apart in the early 1850s. But of course it was not to be. Now I want to talk just a little bit about the Socialist Party's convention, which took place in Indianapolis, although I'm not sure the exact dates. It looks like it was held back in May of 1912, which is well before the other party conventions, but again, I don't have exact dates nailed down as of this recording. Undoubtedly, the most prominent Socialist Party activist at the time was Eugene Debs, who had already been the party's presidential candidate in 1900, 1904, and 1908. So this would be his fourth time throwing his hat in the ring there. And Debs was the founder and leader of the American Railway Union. And in that capacity, he led the famous Pullman strike in 1894, which landed him in prison on federal charges. 
and during his time incarcerated, he read Karl Marx and was converted to the cause of socialism. And then once he got out of prison, he founded the American Socialist Party, or, you know, was one of the key people in founding it. By 1912, the American Socialist Party had more than 100,000 card-carrying members, and many times more than that, who supported or were at the very least sympathetic to the party. And in this era, and especially in this particular election, the socialists spent a lot of time calling BS on the progressives, whether they were progressive Republicans, progressive Democrats, or progressive progressives. And basically, the socialists were arguing, in terms similar to Gabriel Kolko and some of the other New Left historians who studied this era of progressivism in the mid-20th century, arguing that progressivism was really kind of a corporatist plot designed to divert the working class away from genuine socialism. Basically arguing that certain very powerful and wealthy business interests had decided to back progressives and progressivism as a way to divert a lot of the working class away from the lure of socialism and thereby these established business interests could protect and even enhance their power over the government and the economic system. So they spent a lot of time, the socialists, attacking progressives and progressivism, and sometimes even in kind of silly, petty ways. For example, the socialist newspaper Appeal to Reason called Teddy Roosevelt Toothador Busymouth, the would-be dictator and pawn of the capitalists. Those are their exact words there. I forgot to do verbal quote marks around it. And I have to say, even though I'm very much against most aspects of socialism, that I've always found Eugene Debs a very interesting character, and I've always been at least somewhat sympathetic to him. And I've often referred to him as my favorite socialist. The only other contender for that title that comes anywhere close, that maybe, depending on how I'm feeling, I might even edge out slightly over Debs in terms of being my favorite socialist, is actually Mikhail Gorbachev. Those are my two favorite socialists. But anyway, historian Brett Flattinger says that Debs, quote, was able to make socialism less threatening to the traditionally anti-radical American people. A native of the Midwest, Debs subscribed to many of the religious and cultural ideals of his fellow citizens, and as Arthur Schlesinger Jr. notes, he had a, now he's quoting Schlesinger, a profoundly intuitive understanding of the American people. Men and women loved Debs, even when they hated his doctrine. Ending quote from Schlesinger, continuing with Flanger. Although the other candidates considered the socialists important enough to challenge their doctrine, neither Roosevelt, Taft, nor Wilson engaged in overt red-baiting or demonization of Debs and his followers. End quote. Now that said, the Socialist Party was, like all the other parties at the time, and like parties just sort of in general, host to various internal divisions and factions within it. And in the case of the Socialists, some of it was, as it always is, over personalities. But it was also over issues, regarding both means and ends. For example, whether or not to explicitly renounce all violent means, and things like the relationship between socialism and Christianity. And my understanding is that, and I don't claim to be an expert on the internal workings of the American Socialist Party during this time period, but my basic understanding is that while Debs didn't want to entirely alienate all the radicals, 
he was generally on the side of number one, renouncing violent means, and number two, he was favorable to welcoming and working with Christian socialists. Debs did not personally attend the 1912 Socialist Party convention, which was both, one, standard for a presidential candidate at the time, remember TR's attendance at the Republican and then Progressive conventions, was seen as a break with precedent. And also, Debs's non-attendance at the convention may have been a strategic move designed to kind of keep him above the factional fray in the party. And it seems to have worked, as Debs got the party's nomination for president in 1912 yet again without a whole lot of trouble or controversy. But I do want to share with you here just a few things Debs said and wrote during the period of 1911-1912 to give you a sense of the messaging that he was putting out during the campaign. So, in an article published in the Chicago Tribune in November 1911, a year before the general election, but as the election was already starting to take shape, this article was entitled, Socialism Gives Only Cure for Trust Evils, written by Eugene Debs, and in this article he argued that the growth and consolidation of giant corporations was a natural and inevitable thing, and that naturally industry was tending away from competition. And just on that point alone, he sounds a lot like Teddy Roosevelt and Professor Van Hise, and others who had a big intellectual influence on TR, like, for example, Herbert Crowley in The Promise of American Life. But of course, where Debs differs from these guys is that Debs thinks that the solution to the problems created by the existing state of affairs is socialism, is outright collective ownership of the means of production via the state. Whereas TR and his sort of progressives were pushing government regulation instead, which people like Debs, as well as the more kind of anti-corporate progressives, saw as basically a recipe or perhaps even a deliberate cover for regulatory capture, right, whereby the government regulators would end up mainly serving to empower and protect the trusts rather than actually regulating them in any sort of so-called public interest. The anti-corporate progressive solution to the situation was, of course, to break up the existing trusts in an attempt to restore competition and put in place regulations and things to try and prevent that degree of consolidation in the future. Whereas the socialist solution was to leave the giant trusts intact, but have them nationalized, you know, rather than regulated, just outright nationalized. In this article, Deb starts off saying, quote, the trust is the logical result of industrial evolution. This was the socialist contention from the beginning. No student of economics and no intelligent observer of events believes the trust can be forced back into its constituent and competing elements to satisfy the cry of a defeated and doomed middle class. Only the academic charlatan and the political demagogue, end quote, according to Debs, was arguing at the time that the trust can and should be broken up in an effort to, quote-unquote, return to the good old days of competition. Debs goes on to say that the trust, right, the gigantic corporation, quote, is simply the 20th century tool of production, distribution, and exchange, end quote. And he says that the socialist position is that this consolidation is basically an inevitable and even progressive move, 
beyond competition, which he says that economic competition used to be a progressive force, but now it has become outdated, wasteful, and ultimately futile to really even try to restore it. So notice the strong Marxist influence in terms of the sort of belief in these powerful forces of history, kind of moving history along teleologically through different phases, and the belief that these inevitable impersonal forces of history can be understood in very clear, definitive, objective, scientific terms. Ultimately, Debs says the election will be, quote, a choice between industrial despotism and industrial democracy, that is to say, between capitalism and socialism, end quote. Debs says that pursuing the path of continuing to use things like the Sherman Act to try to break up the trusts and restore some sort of competition is a, quote, first attempt to suspend by legislative enactment the laws underlying our industrial and social development. This measure would have applied with equal force to gravitation or the ebb and flow of the tides, end quote. Further on in this article, he quotes something written by Teddy Roosevelt that actually sounds rather socialistic, but Debs then, after almost kind of jokingly being like, hey, he's plagiarizing our program, more or less, Debs then questions TR's sincerity on these socialistic-sounding statements, and he argues that TR and his movement, at the end of the day, whether, you know, perhaps all of the people involved with the movement or not realize it, they're trying to co-opt or misdirect socialistic sentiment among the working class into corporate progressivism in order to take the wind out of the sails of socialism, to prevent socialism by redirecting those socialist impulses in order to ultimately preserve the private ownership of the trusts, but make it look okay with this, you know, veneer of government regulation. As Debs writes, quote, President Roosevelt, who is popularly supposed to be hostile to the trusts, is in truth their best friend. He would have the government, the capitalist government, of course, practically operate the trusts and turn the profits over to their idle owners. This would mean release from responsibility and immunity of prosecution for the trust owners, while at the same time the government would have to serve as strike breakers for the trust owners, and the armed forces of the government would be employed to keep the working class in subjection. End quote. So, as is often the case, at least in my view, with socialists of this type, Debs mostly correctly describes what progressivism, especially of the corporatist variety, actually is. And he correctly describes some of the dangers of regulatory capture and the use of state power by private corporate interests for their own gains at the expense of everyone else. Though, of course, where I'd part company with Debs and people like him is when they circle back to their argument that socialism is ultimately the best and only solution to everything. Debs concludes the article, quote, As the trusts grow more and more powerful and the puny attempts to shackle them become more and more futile, the only alternative left will be to socialize them, have them owned by the people, and then and not until then can they be successfully controlled and regulated by government, end quote. Now, later, in mid-1912, accepting the Socialist Party's nomination for the presidency, 
Debs reiterated very similar themes and arguments, and he added in more arguments explicitly saying that to the socialists, the Democrats, the Republicans, and the Progressive Party had more in common than not when it came down to the substantive issues. Despite what might appear to be strong hostility amongst those parties towards each other. Now, this, of course, is always one of the most common arguments made by minor party candidates. The basic idea that the big two, or in the case of the 1912 election, thanks to Teddy Roosevelt, briefly the big three, are actually very similar on a lot of important major issues, despite their hostile and very different sounding rhetoric. Deb says that the American working class, quote, never had a party of their own until the Socialist Party was organized. They divided their votes between the parties of their masters. They did not realize that they were using their ballots to forge their own fetters, end quote. But, he goes on to say, the working class is now beginning to awaken with Marxist class consciousness. Debs even drops in the slogan, Workers of all countries unite. Now, I'll point out that Debs is clearly in the tradition of those leftists who really do seem to want to unify people based on their class interests, rather than harping on factors like race, religion, or anything else that we think of today, like gender or sexuality, that are often used to divide classes against each other, right? How do you prevent a giant mass of impoverished people from coming together and trying to, you know, overthrow the existing system that's not working for them? Well, one of the ways you do it is divide and rule, right? But that's not the kind of leftist that people like Debs are. So, in contrast to the woke left of today, which, whether they realize it or not, are often useful idiots employed by the elites to divide and rule, Debs said, quote, There are no boundary lines to separate race from race, sex from sex, or creed from creed in the Socialist Party. The common rights of all are equally recognized. End quote. I think if Debs were around and politically active today, he would definitely side more with the kind of Jimmy Dore version of leftism, the one that seeks to unify people based on class interests and to actually unify people across the divides of things like race and sex and religion and whatever. And based on what I've read of his speeches and writings, I think that if Debs were around today, he would likely see the woke shit as the divide and rule tool for the elites that I believe it is, and that modern-day leftists of this sort tend to also see it as. Debs goes on later in the speech to specifically single out the Progressive Party for criticism, saying that since, at the end of the day, the Progressive Party still ultimately wants to keep the means of production in private hands, that means that they're not really fundamentally different from the Republicans or Democrats on this. And this is, of course, the single most important issue in the socialist minds, right? Will the means of production continue to be privately held? Deb says, quote, The new progressive party is a party of progressive capitalism. It is lavishly financed and shrewdly advertised, but it stands for the rule of capitalism all the same. When the owners of the trusts finance a party to put themselves out of business, when they turn over their wealth to the people from whom they stole it and go to work for a living, it will be time enough to consider the merits of the Roosevelt Progressive Party, end quote. So he's basically correctly pointing out that the Progressive Party was actually backed by some of America's corporate bigwigs, right? Guys like George W. Perkins, 
people like that, and that therefore it really shouldn't be trusted as a party, because why on earth would a bunch of corporate capitalists back a party? If that party was really serious about things like curbing corporate power and redistributing wealth and all these sorts of things. Debs then goes on to say, quote, The Republican, Democratic, and Progressive parties all stand for the private ownership by the capitalists of the productive machinery used by the workers, so that the capitalists can continue to filch the wealth produced by the workers. The capitalists can enslave and rob the workers only by the consent of the workers when they cast their ballots on election day. Every vote cast for a capitalist party, whatever its name, is a vote for wage slavery, for poverty and degradation. Every vote cast for the socialist party, the workers' own party, is a vote for emancipation. End quote. So now I want to talk a little bit more zeroed in on the so-called trust question, as it was sometimes called back then. As you've probably already gotten a sense, or perhaps maybe even more than a sense at this point, so far this episode, the biggest rhetorical issue in the 1912 general campaign was what exactly to do about the so-called trusts, which were basically the big dominating corporations in the American economy that not only dominated the economy, but increasingly were already dominating the political system. And the rise of these giant corporations, some of which could fairly be characterized as, you know, quasi-monopolies, at least for a while, was still a relatively new development in the American experience. Mostly it occurred in the decades following the Civil War, although you can see the beginning of some of these trends before the Civil War, like, for example, the beginning of the rise of railroad companies and things like that. But it's really in the decades following the Civil War that businesses in many industries are increasingly consolidated into larger firms. Now, as Gabriel Kolko shows in Triumph of Conservatism and some other new left historians have done similar work, they do show that the perception that the American economy was tending across the board towards monopoly and away from competition just naturally before the progressives kind of took over the political system, that that's really exaggerated and in some cases is even the opposite of what was really going on. But the point is that when it comes to politics and rhetoric and elections, people's perception of what's going on is often more important in driving their their behavior and, you know, how they vote and things like this and what rhetoric resonates with them and what doesn't. And clearly, whether the objective data always back it up or not, it definitely seems like the perception of a lot of just regular Americans around 1912 was that, yes, corporate consolidation is, you know, taking over everything. And that in each industry, it's increasingly tending towards monopoly or near monopoly or sort of like a cartel arrangement that amounts to a monopoly in practice or whatever. So because of this feeling, there was a very lively debate over how the U.S. political system should respond to this development of the emergence and rise of the trusts. Few, if any, people in the mainstream political debate at the time were saying that absolutely no changes or reforms were necessary in regards to this question. Pretty much everybody in mainstream politics 
wanted some degree of change. But the question was how much, and of course, of exactly what sort. So basically, I'll summarize the stances as follows of the candidates. Taft basically supported the existing paradigm at the time that was centered on antitrust laws that would be, hopefully, impartially enforced by the executive and worked out in the judicial system, with trusts being broken up if they are deemed to have broken the antitrust laws. And Taft, you know, was open to continuing to fine-tune this approach and maybe clarify the antitrust laws more or amend them and add to them if necessary, but generally he wanted to continue the basic approach that he'd been following for four years as president. Wilson was more interested in putting in place policies and institutions and regulatory agencies and things to try to more proactively prevent corporations from coming anywhere close to monopoly status to begin with, and to keep things competitive in every industry as much as possible, under the belief that using the government to try to encourage and preserve competition would be the best thing from the standpoint of efficiency and wanting to prevent massive concentrations of wealth and power from emerging. Teddy Roosevelt, on the other hand, wanted to leave the trusts intact because he thought concentration was inevitable and potentially beneficial, but he wanted to have the government regulate the trusts in the name of so-called public interest. And then, of course, Eugene Debs simply wanted to leave the trusts intact, but to socialize them. In his rhetoric, Wilson often tried to sound like the relatively Jeffersonian, Jacksonian sort of classical liberal alternative on this issue. And he was pretty good at making it sound like he was only against artificial privilege and political entrepreneurship, but that he might still largely be in favor of the idea of laissez-faire free market competition. He was very good at putting progressive status ideas into Jeffersonian sounding language. As a professor of American history, he very well understood what sorts of rhetoric historically tended to resonate with Americans, even if he didn't always actually believe in the ideas that those sorts of rhetorical idioms pointed towards. So, for example, in a speech in September of 1912, Wilson said, quote, The center of all our economic difficulties is that there is not freedom of enterprise in the United States, end quote. Sounds like he's staking out a free market case. Wilson then went on in the speech to say that, quote, The inventive genius and initiative of the American people is being so controlled that new entries, newcomers, new adventurers, independent men are feared, and if they will not go partners in the game with those already in the control of it, they will be excluded, end quote. So, in contrast to T.R.'s argument that the trusts were inevitable and could even be a positive thing if only the state would regulate them for the common good, Wilson says, quote, What I am interested in is laws that will give the little man a start, that will give him a chance to show these fellows that he has brains enough to compete with them and can presently make his local market a national market and his national market a world market and put them to their mettle to do the business more intelligently and economically and systematically than he can, end quote. So he's staking out a position very much sounding like he's in favor of free market competition. But of course, what happens when Wilson's quote-unquote little man starts to get successful 
and becomes a dominant force in a given industry? What happens when he turns his local market to a national one, to a world one, right? What if the little man becomes a big man? And what if he does so just through market entrepreneurship? Is he still a villain that should be targeted by the state simply because he's no longer the little guy? Wilson doesn't really address this conundrum. Also notice, by the way, how, yet again, Wilson in these sorts of passages sounds at times like a very much classical liberal sort of a character, espousing more kind of negative rights, right? The sorts of rights that are based on the idea that the state should leave men alone to compete and seek their economic fortune. But at other times, Wilson will sound like a progressive, espousing positive rights. The sorts of rights where the state's going to give you stuff, right? When he says things like that the state will, quote, give the little man a start, end quote. So that's this progressive idea that positive state action is necessary for individuals to be empowered, to reach their potential, and that that is what rights should be reinterpreted to mean in modern times. This sort of stuff, it's a brilliant, deliberately sloppy bait-and-switch that allows listeners to Rorschach onto Wilson's rhetoric whatever notion of rights and the state's relationship to the individual that one wants to hear. So if one's more progressive, you will focus on those aspects of Wilson's rhetoric that sound like that, and if you're a bit more conservative, traditional Democrat of the time period, you're going to seize upon the things he says that sound very much in that tradition. Whether Wilson genuinely believed his own rhetoric at this time or not, who knows, but it resonated with a larger amount of the American people at the time than did the rhetoric of any of the other presidential candidates in 1912, which is why, plot spoiler, Wilson will win a plurality of the popular vote and a pretty significant electoral vote as well. In some ways, you could say his rhetoric on all this stuff was really perfect for the occasion. He sounded progressive enough in an era when progressivism was increasingly popular. But he also expressed his progressivism in idioms and language that sounded enough like more traditional American ideology to appeal to the more moderate and even conservative voters. In another speech a day later, Wilson said, quote, Here at the turning of the ways, when we are at last asking ourselves, can we get a free government that will serve us? And when we get it, will it set us free? They say, no, you can't have a free government, and you ought not to desire to be free. We know your interests. We will obtain everything that you need by beneficent regulation. It isn't necessary to set you free. It is only necessary to take care of you. Ah, that way lies the path of tyranny. That way lies the destruction of independent free institutions. End quote. Now, when Wilson says they in that speech, he basically means T.R. and his allies, both in politics and in the corporate world. And Wilson is rhetorically trying to place himself as the more individualistic-sounding alternative to T.R.'s top-down paternalist corporate progressivism. Remember, Wilson chose to call his platform the New Freedom, in contrast to T.R.'s New nationalism. A huge influence on Wilson in regard to the trust question, and eventually on some other issues that also comprised Wilson's so-called new freedom, was Louis D. Brandeis. 
Woodrow Wilson met with Brandeis in person for the first time on August 27, 1912. Now, Brandeis is an interesting character and important to 20th century American history. Wilson is eventually going to make him a Supreme Court justice. Brandeis had been born in Louisville, Kentucky, to Jewish immigrant parents. Like Wilson, he'd been born just a few years before the Civil War happened. In fact, I'm pretty sure Brandeis was only one month older than Wilson was. At the age of only 20, Brandeis graduated valedictorian from Harvard Law School. As a lawyer, he tended to specialize in suits against what he perceived as corporate special interests and privilege. And he evolved into a particular type of progressive. Though he was a Democrat, Brandeis became a friend and consultant to Robert La Follette. And like La Follette, Brandeis's progressivism was of the anti-corporate variety. And as such, he was very much opposed to TR's notion of allowing the huge trust to remain intact and just have the government regulate them more. At their initial meeting in Seagirt, New Jersey, Brandeis talked with Wilson for three hours about the issue of the trusts, and Brandeis seems to have sold Wilson pretty completely on his take on the issue, with which Wilson was already sympathetic based on his prior statements. Brandeis seems to have just sort of helped to solidify and clarify the issue in Wilson's mind. And Brandeis's take on the issue allowed Wilson to do more in terms of branding himself as somehow different from TR in regard to the trust question. Basically, Brandeis, and now Wilson, disagreed with TR's proposal to have the government regulate the trusts. Instead, Brandeis and Wilson wanted to regulate in such a way as to keep competition going and prevent monopolies from arising in the first place rather than allowing monopoly or near-monopoly to exist, but having the government simply try to regulate it. Which, again, is what TR was calling for. As Brandeis put it, quote, Our whole people have revolted at the idea of monopoly and have made monopoly illegal. Yet the third party, by which he means the progressive party, proposes to make legal what is illegal. The progressive party is trying to make evil good, and that is a thing that cannot be done. End quote. Scott Berg sums up Brandeis's take as follows, quote, Brandeis proposed that the Democratic Party embrace competition, which trusts inhibited. Brandeis positioned the bullmoosers as a party that embraced big trusts and required big government to control them. Wilson would be the Jeffersonian proponent of less government. The friend of big business, but the enemy of trusts and unfair business practices. End quote. Ultimately, Wilson would brand his version of progressivism as, like I said before, the new freedom. In contrast to TR's already branded new nationalism platform. And notice how even the stupid rhetorical labels, right? New freedom sounds like the more libertarian-ish catchphrase. And notice how it's cleverly crafted to allow people to kind of Rorschach what they want onto it. So that even if you were an old-school kind of Grover Cleveland-style bourbon Democrat, or perhaps an old-school Southern Democrat in kind of the Jefferson-Jackson mold, this label and this sort of rhetoric might allow you to willingly overlook Wilson's statism and hardcore progressivism. 
and instead perceive Wilson as the relatively more classically liberal candidate in the election. Basically, what I'm saying is that Wilson did a great job in this campaign of making himself, who's clearly a statist wolf, if you go back and look at his academic work and then at his brief time as governor of New Jersey. He's clearly a statist wolf, but he sounded enough like a Jeffersonian sheep that he was able to hang on to a lot of support from kind of old-school, non-populist and non-progressive Democrats. So he did a very skillful job of sounding progressive enough to keep progressive and populist Democrat support, while not sounding so radical that he scared off all the more traditional Democrats that still remained in the party. So now let's talk about the general election campaign from the 1912 election. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about Wilson's campaign and his experience of the campaign. Although we will mention some of the other candidates a bit when something important happened with regard to them. So the first thing I want to mention here is how Wilson's campaign was funded. Because there's a very interesting parallel to a lot of modern day progressive Democrats in this regard. That Wilson, like seemingly most mainstream progressive Democrats of our time, I'm not talking like the hard left, outright socialist types, but the more kind of like center left group that maybe ideologically runs from kind of Joe Biden to Elizabeth Warren, let's say. Wilson, like a lot of those sorts of mainstream Democrats of our day, he talked a lot about not wanting to be funded by sort of big business money, right, corporate money, all that. And yet, when push comes to shove, his campaign was largely funded by big donations from major entrepreneurs in the corporate world. In fact, more than two-thirds of Wilson's campaign funding in 1912 came from large contributions by wealthy donors. So, for example, a guy named Charles R. Crane, who was a staunchly progressive entrepreneur who ran a significant company that made, of all things, plumbing fixtures. This guy made the single largest campaign contribution to Woodrow Wilson in 1912, with $40,000, which is a pretty nice size check today. But keep in mind, this is 1912. Over a 100 years of Federal Reserve inflation since then means that, adjusted into today's prices and buying power and all that, that Crane's contribution to Woodrow Wilson's campaign was actually about a million dollars. And Wilson's longtime friend and backer and, many years ago, Princeton University classmate, Cleveland Dodge, who we've referenced repeatedly throughout this series already, he made the second largest contribution to Wilson's campaign with a donation of $35,000, which, again, adjusted into today's buying power, is roughly around $900,000, according to Inflation Calculator. Wilson also did very well from the New York Jewish community of financiers and entrepreneurs, who then, just like now, tended to be overwhelmingly Democrats, and who often tended to lean fairly progressive in politics. So, Wilson got big donations from such individuals among that group as Henry Morgenthau, Jacob Schiff, and Bernard Baruch, to name just a few. 
Wilson biographer John Milton Cooper says that, quote, Wilson drew the line at contributions from notorious trust magnets, end quote, by which I assume he means people like J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and so on, the absolute most notorious malefactors of great wealth from the era. Now, of course, notice that Wilson is quite happy to take contributions from people who objectively might be considered to be at the same level or nearly at the same level as someone like Morgan or Rockefeller, but people who are not quite as notorious in a bad way amongst the general public, right? So in other words, Wilson refusing to take money from someone like J.P. Morgan is not really a principled thing. It's purely a PR move. I mean, he's happy to take a check from Jacob Schiff because Jacob Schiff at the time was nowhere near as notorious amongst the general public, you know, the voters, as somebody like J.P. Morgan. And aside from those few malefactors of great wealth that Wilson didn't want to take money from, as his biographer Cooper says, quote, otherwise this champion of progressivism took money from the kind of people he was denouncing on the hustings, end quote. Again, very much like most modern mainstream progressive Democrats, they denounce the corporate fat cats and then happily take their money, and then, as we'll see later on in this series, more often than not, they spend their time in office doing exactly what these fat cats want them to do. Whether they even realize that they're basically useful idiots or not. And I think Wilson definitely falls into this category in the same way that maybe somebody like Elizabeth Warren does. The general election campaign really kicked off in earnest on September 2nd, which was Labor Day. Doesn't that sound lovely and quaint, by the way? The presidential general campaign doesn't really get rolling full blast until September, and so you only have to endure about two months of it? Wouldn't that be wonderful to get back to that? On that day, Wilson gave two speeches in Buffalo, New York. During one of them, Wilson attacked Roosevelt's stance on the trust issue by warning that, quote, once the government regulates the monopoly, then monopoly will see to it that it regulates the government, end quote. Wilson also hit upon traditional Democratic Party-sounding themes, warning that TR's regulate the trust's idea could lead to, quote, a government of experts, end quote, about which Wilson warned, quote, God forbid that in a democratic country we should resign that task and give the government over to the experts, because if we don't understand the job, we are not a free people, end quote. So, first off, he sounds a bit like Andrew Jackson in those sorts of statements, and of course, Wilson actually had mostly negative things to say about Andrew Jackson back when Wilson was an academic and not trying to run for office as a Democrat. But aside from that, this statement is basically a pretty accurate assessment of the concept that later gets known as regulatory capture, which is the phenomenon in which some government regulatory agency, which is set up supposedly to regulate some industry for the quote-unquote public good, almost inevitably, nearly 100% of the time, sooner or later, and usually sooner, ends up working on behalf of the major firms in the industry itself, in other words, actually working for the corporate fat cats that they're supposed to be regulating in the name of the common people. Now, if you remember my episode way back when, a year or more ago, whenever it was, on Wilson's academic article, The Study of Administration, which he wrote all the way back in the 1880s when he was still pretty new in academia, you'll realize just how intellectually dishonest Wilson is being with these sorts of remarks. 
when he was an academic, he had been explicitly advocating in favor of government run by experts for decades. But now here he is campaigning for the presidency, acting like he's against that concept on sort of Jeffersonian democratic grounds. Now, if anybody at the time had actually gone and read Wilson's academic work, which I understand why you wouldn't, because as I said in the episode where I zeroed in on all that stuff, it's painful to read. It's not the most fun stuff to read, for sure. But still, you would think a major contender for the presidency, somebody might want to go and check, because this guy had been a social scientist writing stuff on history and economics for decades. You might want to go check it out to try and figure out what this guy's really up to. So if anybody had actually done their homework, they would have known what Wilson's real beliefs were, and they would have known that this campaign rhetoric was complete bullshit, but... Of course, just like today, most voters back in 1912 weren't really doing the sorts of research that they should, in order to really try and figure out what a candidate is up to, because, surprise, surprise, very often candidates' campaign rhetoric do not reflect their real views and do not reflect their real intentions of what they're going to do once they get the ring of power. In a speech in New York City on September 9th, Wilson said, quote, The history of liberty is a history of the limitation of governmental power, not the increase of it. End quote. Again, pretending that he's still some sort of Jeffersonian classical liberal, when in reality he'd been advocating for massive increases in state power for literally decades. TR, for his part, willingly played along with the facade that Wilson was some sort of neo-Jeffersonian, even though TR undoubtedly knew better because TR did have at least a little bit of familiarity with some of Wilson's academic work. But TR's playing his role. And so what TR does, because he's trying to portray himself as the real progressive, is he will seize upon these sorts of statements Wilson periodically makes sound very Jeffersonian, traditional Democrat, classical liberal. And TR is going to point to these and say, aha, here's proof Wilson isn't really a progressive. In reality, he's some sort of states' rights conservative retrograde Democrat. And again, the voters are just going to Rorschach whatever they want. So if, for example, you were a bourbon or kind of old-style Southern conservative Democrat, and you're a little bit skittish about Wilson because some of the more progressive things he said, well, then you'll hear Wilson say something that sounds very traditional Democrat, and you'll see TR denouncing it as backwards and retrograde. And if you're a more conservative-leaning Democrat, you go, oh, okay, Wilson ain't so bad after all. And you'll Rorschach onto it the assumption that it's his progressive statements that are you know, just campaign rhetoric, rather than vice versa. Over the remainder of the campaign, Wilson delivered more than 150 public speeches of various types. Most of his speeches that he gave during this campaign were partially or even mostly ad lib, in contrast to T.R., who typically wrote out his speeches in detail longhand, and would usually even give transcripts to the press ahead of one of his speeches. Now, once Wilson gets in the White House, he will increasingly write out his speeches ahead of time because he realized that this kind of kept him on message better and helped to prevent the press from being able to take, you know, maybe an offhanded ad lib sort of remark out of context and to try and spin it however they wanted to. Wilson biographer Scott Berg says that, quote, 
Audiences found his addresses both soothing and inspiring, as Wilson spoke in language as poetic as that of any candidate who ever ran for president. End quote. Now, to give the devil his due, I would say that, like Barack Obama in our own times, Wilson was very good at creating a public image of being very calm and collected and reasonable, which can oftentimes be a positive thing, especially depending upon who your opponents at any given time might be. So, you know, the fact that Wilson's number one opponent in this election is T.R., who has this very hyperbolic, bombastic public persona, which a lot of people liked, but to be fair, a lot of other people didn't. Sometimes, at least, in political races, the person who projects the image of being very measured and reasonable and smooth and calm can win against the person who comes across as more dynamic and charismatic, but also seemingly more uh, volatile and erratic and that sort of thing. Now, it's true also that in some cases, with different circumstances and details, the reverse can happen. Sometimes the more volatile person can win and appear to be preferable to more voters. And it all very much depends on the specific circumstances of the time and the mood of the electorate and the particular details of the individual personalities and the campaign and so on. In terms of physical appearance, many thought that Wilson was just perfect for a president. No less an observer than George F. Kennan once said, quote, No man in modern times, to my mind, ever better looked or acted the part of an American president, end quote, than Wilson. Throughout the campaign, Wilson was constantly trying to contrast himself from TR as much as he could, both in terms of personality and in terms of their slightly differing brands of progressivism. Now, if you're not a progressive, this can seem a little bit like hair-splitting. And the fact of the matter was that Wilson had previously been pretty complimentary about TR's progressivism back when Wilson was just starting to enter into politics. But now he had to, for campaign reasons, maximize the contrast between himself and TR, even though, again, to someone who's wholly outside the progressive worldview, it does really seem like the substantive policy differences between the two candidates are pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. But hey, one of the things that American party politics is absolutely wonderful at is pretending that minor differences between candidates on substantive issues are in fact huge ideological chasms, absolute black and white contrasts. Even John Milton Cooper, who for the most part seems to be pretty conventional in most of his takes on Wilson and this era, in American political history, even he admits briefly that the differences between Wilson and T.R. might not really have been all that great on substantive issues. He writes, quote, The content of the two men's politics, unlike their images, did not strike many observers as offering much of a contrast. Women's suffrage, which did not loom large in the campaign, was the only issue on which they took clear-cut opposing stands. On the two questions that did loom large, the trusts and the size and strength of the government, it was hard to see where they differed, end quote. Furthermore, Cooper notes, quote, 
Both men had admired Hamilton since their youth, and neither could top the other in admiration for strong, centralized, activist, interventionist government. End quote. He then notes that they did have some differences on the issue of the tariff and a few other things, but as he quotes the journalist William Allen White, reflecting on the 1912 campaign some years later, quote, Between the new nationalism and the new freedom was that fantastic imagery gulf that has existed between Tweedledum and Tweedledee, end quote. Wilson, wisely from a strategy point of view, mostly ignored Taft and threw most of his rhetorical attacks against T.R., and T.R. reciprocated, spending most of his rhetorical time arguing with Wilson rather than with Taft, and from the point of view of a lot of public opinion, the election ultimately seemed like it would come down to Wilson versus T.R. As is always the case, personalities played at least as much of a role as policies, and arguably more so, in the eyes of the average voter, and there were definitely bigger personality contrasts between Wilson and T.R. than there were policy differences. And the candidates themselves, Wilson and T.R., both understood the personality issue. Wilson wrote to Mary Peck, who by this time was going by Mary Hulbert, which was her maiden name, because she'd finally divorced from her long-estranged husband. Anyway, in a letter to her, Wilson was talking about the differences between himself and T.R. as follows, quote, He appeals to their imagination. I do not. He is a real, vivid person, whom they have seen and shouted themselves horse over, and voted for, million strong. I am a vague, conjectural personality, more made up of opinions and academic prepossessions than of human traits and red corpuscles, end quote. So, you know, Wilson was clearly aware that he could come off as a bit, you know, aloof and bookish and that sort of thing, and though he wouldn't have used the term nerdy, in contrast to T.R., and that some voters would prefer T.R. to him on that score. But that said, to the many people who were undoubtedly put off by T.R.'s over-the-top bombastic style, Woodrow Wilson's very smooth and calm and collected style resonated with those sorts of people. By the way, speaking of Mrs. Peck or Miss Holbert, Senator Elihu Root of New York, who had previously served as Secretary of War under McKinley and T.R., and also as Secretary of State under T.R., claimed to have evidence regarding Wilson's affair with Mrs. Peck, and that Wilson had something to do with Mrs. Peck's ultimate divorce. Root wanted to publicize this information that he claimed to have, and other friends and supporters of T.R. wanted... T.R. to explicitly bring up the Peck affair in the campaign, too. T.R. ultimately refused, and not because he wanted to play the campaign clean and take the high road. Not because he had any sort of sense that personal matters ought to be left out of the public debate. But actually because he thought that bringing up the rumors of the affair might actually make Wilson seem more cool. Might actually make him seem more human and less of a square. T.R. actually said that the scandal might make Wilson appear to be something other than, as T.R. himself put it, an apothecary clerk. 
So isn't that interesting? TR doesn't want to bring up rumors of Wilson having an affair because it might actually make Wilson seem more interesting and cool and human. As the campaign continued, you see a similar pattern that we've already seen of Wilson sort of tacking back and forth between sounding progressive and sounding like an old-school Democrat. In a speech on September 20th, he said, quote, Here at the turning of the ways, when we are at last asking ourselves, can we get a government that will serve us, and when we get it, will it set us free? They say, no, you can't have a free government, and you ought not to desire to be set free. We know your interests. We will obtain everything that you need by beneficent regulation. It isn't necessary to set you free. It is only necessary to take care of you. Ah, that way lies the path of tyranny. That way lies the destruction of independent, free institutions. End quote. So again, there he is contrasting himself with the paternalist progressivism of T.R. And Wilson rhetorically playing the role of the more kind of traditional American small d slash large d Democrat. On September 27th, Wilson and William Howard Taft were actually staying at the same hotel, the Copley Plaza Hotel in Boston. Wilson arranged a brief face-to-face meeting with Taft. He actually insisted on doing it because he said it would be wrong to not at least briefly meet Taft, given the circumstances. We're told that the men spoke briefly to each other, basically talking about the exhausting experience of the campaign, you know, sort of small talk, that kind of stuff. But we're told it was very cordial. Afterward, Wilson commented to the press, quote, It was a very delightful meeting. I am very fond of President Taft, end quote. However, Wilson also made a dig at Taft for being fat, saying something to the effect that he, Wilson, had faith that his bed at the hotel would be plenty sufficient for him, since it had been sufficient for Taft and his notorious girth. So Wilson, even in saying nice things about Taft, couldn't help but have a little aside making fun of him for being fat. And this brief encounter between Taft and Wilson at this hotel was actually the only face-to-face meeting of any of the presidential candidates during the general election campaign. Taft, for his part, moved in an increasingly conservative-sounding direction as the campaign went on. Just a few days after his face-to-face encounter with Wilson, in a speech, Taft said, quote, A national government cannot create good times. It cannot make the rain to fall, the sun to shine, or the crops to grow. But it can, by pursuing a meddlesome policy, attempting to change economic conditions, and frightening the investment of capital, prevent a prosperity and a revival of business, which otherwise might have taken place, end quote. In early October, a congressional committee released a report about Republican Party campaign financing from back in 1904, which was when T.R. was running for re-election. This report showed that three-quarters of the party's money came directly or indirectly from the trusts, and that about a quarter of it came from just four individuals. Namely, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, E.H. Harriman, and Henry Clay Frick. Wilson actually greeted the report in a pretty restrained fashion, and didn't attempt to capitalize on it as much as you might expect. 
Perhaps it's because he's in a glass house himself if they want to go down that road. I mean, Wilson hadn't taken any money from those four individuals I just named, but he certainly had taken plenty of money from other fat cats. When asked about this, Wilson just said that he cared more about where T.R. got his ideas from than where he got his money. I'm honestly not sure if there's any way we can tell whether or not this report had any impact on the election. We might hypothesize that it might, but there's just no way to know. On October 14th, just a few weeks away from Election Day, T.R. was shot in the chest by a would-be assassin as he was leaving a hotel in Milwaukee to go give a campaign speech. The bullet was slowed down enough by T.R.'s eyeglass case and by the pages of his speech that it didn't penetrate all the way into his lungs and kill him, though it did lodge in his chest. Despite being shot, T.R. famously went and gave the 90-minute speech before finally agreeing to go to the hospital. Doctors decided not to try to remove the bullet, and they told T.R. that he needed to rest and recover for two weeks, which was most of the rest of the campaign season. During those two weeks that T.R. was out of action, Wilson and Taft also suspended their campaigns as well. At this point, Colonel House, a little bit worried about Wilson's safety, arranged for a friend of his, a former Texas Ranger named Bill McDonald, to be Wilson's bodyguard for the remainder of the campaign. Because at the time, Secret Service wasn't provided to candidates during campaigns. On October 30th, only six days before the general election, Vice President James Sherman, who of course was Taft's VP and also running mate for re-election, died of kidney disease, leaving Taft without a running mate or a VP for the remainder of the campaign, because there simply was no time to replace Sherman before the election was going to happen. That same night, T.R., still visibly weak from having been shot, spoke to 16,000 people at Madison Square Garden to tremendous applause. The following night, Wilson spoke to a similar-sized group of his supporters at the same venue, and according to reporters, Wilson got even more applause. On November 4th, the day before the election, Wilson was in a minor vehicle accident caused by his chauffeur hitting a really bad pothole. But in those, you know, non-seatbelt, very little safety features in general kind of days, even something like that was enough to cause Wilson to bang his head on the ceiling of the car and break his glasses, and he ended up needing stitches to sew up a bleeding scalp wound. Wilson's health, which as we've covered in this series already, was never great was really worn down from the campaign in various ways, besides just hurting his head in a car accident. He'd been experiencing headaches and digestive issues during the campaign, and hadn't been sleeping well, and his voice, of course, was totally wrecked. So by the time the election was about to happen, he was pretty much totally worn out eight ways from Sunday. Election day was Tuesday, November 5th, and on that day, Wilson voted at the Princeton Fire Station early in the morning and then took a stroll through town before returning home, where he followed the incoming election results via a telegraph ticker that had previously belonged to the now-late President Grover Cleveland. As the return started to come in, it didn't take long for things to look pretty good for Wilson and we're told that just a little bit before 10 p.m., a bell began to sound from NASA Hall. 
and Joseph Tumulty showed up to greet Mrs. Wilson at the front door, yelling, He's elected, Mrs. Wilson! When he heard the news, Woodrow Wilson kissed his wife and hugged his daughters. Soon, Wilson received telegram messages of concession and congratulations from both T.R. and Taft. A little later, Wilson gave a victory speech standing on a chair on his front porch, speaking to the reporters and well-wishers and supporters who were gathered outside. He said, quote, Gentlemen, I am sincerely glad to see you. I have no feeling of triumph tonight, but a feeling of solemn responsibility. You men must play a great part. I plead with you again to look constantly forward. I summon you for the rest of your lives to support the men who, like myself, want to carry the nation forward to its highest destiny and greatness. End quote. So let's talk a little bit about the overall general election results. How did this go down, and how did Wilson win? Well, basically, because TR's bull moose ticket split off a lot of Republican voters, Woodrow Wilson was able to win a plurality of the popular vote and a very large Electoral College majority. Interestingly, for an election that is so storied in U.S. history, the 1912 presidential election saw only a 58% voter turnout, which actually was, at that time, the lowest turnout rate in over 70 years. So you'd have to go back to well before the Civil War to find the last time the presidential vote was that low. A major part of that low turnout was, as I mentioned earlier and as John Milton Cooper accurately but briefly points out in his biography of Wilson, that the differences on policy between the two frontrunners seemed pretty minor. Cooper says that the, quote, widely perceived lack of difference between the candidates explained much of the inertia among voters, end quote. Now, notice, though, that Cooper said widely perceived lack of difference. I think that the voters were accurately perceiving that there wasn't huge difference on issues between T.R. and Wilson. But Cooper seems to disagree, at least somewhat, because a little later on, Cooper argues that while the public may have perceived the differences between the two frontrunner candidates on the issues as being fairly minor. He, Cooper, insists that the differences really were important, but basically he's just saying that the public largely missed these subtle but important differences, particularly in regard to the so-called trust question. Cooper then goes on to tack heavily back into the conventional establishment narrative, which is that T.R. was the early 20th century heir to Hamilton, and that Wilson was the early 20th century heir to Jefferson. The latter part of which is, to me, complete horseshit, considering that Wilson was the opposite of Jefferson on most major political questions. And the fact of the matter was that, broadly speaking, both T.R., and Wilson in 1912 are much more Hamilton than anything else in terms of connections to older eras of American political ideology. Out of a little over 15 million popular votes cast in the 1912 general election, Woodrow Wilson came in first place with about 41.8%. 
which is a strong plurality given the nature of the race, but is obviously far from a popular vote majority, which would have been very unlikely to happen considering the nature of the race. In popular votes, TR came in second with 27.4%. Taft came in third with 23.2%, not that far behind TR. And Eugene Debs in fourth place did pretty respectable for a minor party candidate lacking the usual resources of the big parties, and also lacking A, a popular ex-president as the party nominee, and B, the corporate money that had funneled into TR's progressive party campaign. These, of course, as we've said before, being the two main factors that allowed TR to turn in the best third-party run in all of American history. Now, think about that for a moment, by the way, just as sort of a side note. All of you who really might be under the delusion that a third-party presidential candidate might actually win a presidential election someday, think about this. In 1912, it took a popular former president as the party nominee of a third party, plus way more corporate money behind that third party than is normally the case with a third party. And that's what it took to turn in the most successful third-party run in all of American history, and it still didn't win. Now, I'm not saying that third-party presidential runs are always totally worthless, and I'm not saying that they might not potentially serve a useful role in getting a message out and maybe educating some of the public. But what I'm saying is, if you really think that a third-party candidate is going to win a presidential election ever, all I can say is you are smoking some shit that is so powerful that I would be scared to hit it. On the interesting hypothetical question of what would have happened in this election if Taft wasn't in the mix, if, for example, TR had won the Republican nomination, and it was truly just TR versus Wilson, would Wilson still have won? John Milton Cooper argues yes. John Milton Cooper, in particular, looks at a couple of states where Taft wasn't on the ballot and shows you that Wilson still won those states. And he kind of extrapolates from there, saying that Wilson still would have won in enough of the important states to have won Electoral College. Now, I can't say that I've done any sort of like in-depth, crunching-the-numbers, alternative-scenario sort of analysis. But it seems to me at least questionable that Wilson would have won in a one-on-one against TR and possibly even against Taft. And my reasoning is as follows. If you look at Taft and TR's combined popular vote, and it does seem reasonable to me to assume that the bulk of TR's voters in this election probably would have voted Republican if TR hadn't been in the race as the Bull Moose candidate. You know, I'm sure some of them might have voted for Wilson over Taft, But a lot of the Progressive Party voters and campaigners in 1912 were lifelong Republicans prior to the Bull Moose Party. So it's a reasonable assumption to guess that a large majority of TR voters in 1912 would have normally voted for whoever the Republican Party candidate was, simply out of party loyalty habit. If that were the case, then basically, if you combine together TR's popular vote and Taft's popular vote totals, you get up above 50% of the popular vote 
Now, okay, it's not the popular vote that picks the president. I understand that. It still matters, you know, how those votes would be distributed amongst the various states and how that would impact the Electoral College numbers. But still, it seems to me that if a unified Republican Party had won over 50% of the popular votes, and Wilson only won, you know, slightly under 42% of the popular votes, to me, it seems difficult to believe that Wilson might still have won the Electoral College vote. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying, you know, when we have those elections every now and then, where the candidate who loses the popular vote wins the Electoral College vote, typically, the popular vote total was very close. Typically, if someone loses the popular vote but then wins the Electoral College vote, it usually means they only lost the popular vote by at most a couple of percent. Not by, you know, close to 10%. So I don't know. Again, I don't claim to have done all the egghead number crunching and looking at state-by-state data. It probably would be pretty difficult to do that for 1912 with the same degree of accuracy and likelihood of correct modeling that you could in elections, say, in the past 20 years. So who knows for sure, but I actually think if the Republican Party vote had not been split, just given the nature of the fourth-party system era overall, that the odds of the Republican candidate winning are higher than the odds of Wilson winning. But, you know, there's all sorts of variables as well. How do things get impacted if you take, you know, one of the key players out of the election and so forth? If, for example, Taft had been the Republican nominee without TR also in the race, would that have caused enough of the people who would normally have voted Republican to vote for Wilson out of preferring a progressive Democrat to a non-progressive Republican you know, what would those numbers have worked out to? How many how many of those progressive Republicans might Wilson have been able to pick off under those circumstances in which, you know, there's no TR option? Who can really say for sure? Eugene Debs, for his part, won a bit over 900,000 popular votes in the election, which amounted to about 6% of the popular vote, which is still very respectable for a minor party candidate without the name recognition of someone like TR, and without the corporate money that TR got for this campaign. I mean, name some Libertarian and Green Party and other minor party candidates in our time who've managed to win 6% of the popular vote in recent times. And the answer is, you really can't. You'd have to go all the way back almost 30 years to Ross Perot's campaign to find a non-major party candidate getting anywhere in that vicinity. Debs' popular vote total, by the way, was also more than double what he had gotten just four years earlier in the 1908 campaign, which shows you that there definitely was some momentum towards socialism amongst average Americans at the time. In terms of the Electoral College vote, things, of course, look much more favorable to Wilson, given the winner-take-all method of assigning electoral votes. Most states are winner-take-all today, and as far as I know, all of them were back in 1912. So, in other words, even if you win a state's popular vote by a razor-thin margin, you get 100% of that state's Electoral College votes. So, out of the 531 Electoral College votes at stake in 1912, Wilson won 435, which was, I believe, the largest Electoral College victory in U.S. history at that time. TR won 88 Electoral votes, Taft won 
a mere eight, and Debs, of course, one zero. So if you just looked at the electoral map, it looks like a landslide for Wilson, even though, again, he only won around 42% of the popular vote. But in general, the Democratic Party did well in this election. They also significantly increased their majority in the House of Representatives, and they took over the Senate, which they hadn't controlled prior to this election. Wilson said to the press that all of this gave him, quote, hope that the thoughtful progressive forces of the nation may now at last unite to give the country freedom of enterprise and a government released from all selfish and private influences devoted to justice and progress. End quote. Now, I just want to take a little sidebar here and do something I occasionally do kind of speculating in my own mind, which is to look back at an historic election and ask myself if I had to vote in that election. You know, if I was able to vote in that election, and of course, as a non-voter, I probably wouldn't, but if I was not only able to, but was forced to, or, you know, for whatever reason decided I wanted to vote in some particular historical election, which way, how would I do the calculus, right? How would I work out the lesser evil mathematics and all that? And this is sometimes tricky. It's not like you often have a clear-cut case where, you know, Ron Paul is running against Franklin Roosevelt in the general, and you have a very clear-cut choice. It's usually complicated. It's usually, you know, one candidate's better on a few things, the other candidate's better on a few other things, and you have to really kind of make a delicate balance call. But I find it an interesting mental exercise to think about, like, you know, if I had to vote in 1952, who's the lesser evil? Ike Eisenhower or Adlai Stevenson? So, if I could have voted in 1912, and if I had to vote in 1912, whom would I have cast my ballot for? It's not that hard for me to say that from my perspective, the lesser evil overall in domestic policy in this election is Taft. I certainly don't agree with him on everything, to be sure, but all things considered, Taft is, in relative terms of course, definitely the most small government candidate on domestic matters in 1912. But there's a very big however. The however is that I know, thanks to the benefit of over 100 years of hindsight, I know that World War I is going to start in 1914. And therefore, I know that ultimately, the most important decision that anyone elected president in 1912 would have had to make is going to be, What's his response to World War I? Now, I happen to think that the U.S. getting involved in World War I is one of the worst events of the 20th century because it leads to so many second and third and fourth order consequences. Not just for the U.S. domestically, but for the world itself. When you look at the long term and the big picture, and, you know, when we get into the era of Wilson's career where he gets the U.S. into World War I, we'll talk in much more detail about specifically all the negative consequences that come out of Wilson's decision to take the U.S. into World War I. But I just think it was an absolute disaster. So we know empirically, because it's what actually happened, that Wilson as president will basically BS half-heartedly about neutrality for a couple of years, seemingly dragging his feet. He'll get reelected in 1916, and then very soon after that, literally in a matter of months, he will take the U.S. into the war. So there's no way I'm voting for Wilson, obviously, aside from the 10,000 other reasons, some of which I've already mentioned in this series, but many of which are still to come. 
Now, looking at TR, aside from him being at least as big of a statist fascist progressive as Wilson, if not potentially more so in some ways, on domestic policy, you've got the fact that TR was much more gleeful and aggressive of a war hawk than Wilson. And there's overwhelming evidence to indicate that if TR had been president when World War I happened, he would have done everything he possibly could have to get the U.S. into the war as soon as possible. So TR, if anything, would have gotten the U.S. into the war at least a year or maybe two earlier than Wilson did. So, you know, long story short, fuck him. Taft, on the other hand, in regard to World War I, was much more hesitant than either TR or even Wilson. He wasn't in office when it happened, but he was still a public figure, and he expressed a lot of skepticism during the first couple years of the war that the United States should get involved. But, once the U.S. went to war, Taft was strongly supportive. So I simply don't trust Taft to have made the right choice and stuck to his guns if he had been in the White House during that fateful term when World War I broke out. And I'd be worried that there would be enough people around Taft who would be very much part of the pro-war, pro-British establishment side of things that he very likely might have been nudged along in the same way that people like T.R., Henry Cabot Lodge, and others had nudged McKinley into war with Spain, despite McKinley initially being reluctant on that war back in 1898. Which brings us to Debs. Much as I might vehemently disagree with most of Debs's economic platform. I will absolutely give him credit that Eugene Debs was a fucking boss from start to finish on World War I. He spoke out clearly and strongly against U.S. participation from the beginning, and when the U.S. got into it, he spoke out against it still. And he also specifically spoke out against the military draft, knowing that doing so would probably get him in the federal penitentiary. Which, of course, it did in 1918. He spent three years in federal prison for speaking out against U.S. participation in the war and against conscription, which indicates to me that he had the courage of his convictions on the war. That in the extremely unlikely event that Eugene Debs had been president during World War I, he would have stuck to his guns on staying the hell out. A man who's willing to go to prison for opposing the war is not, if he were president, going to let himself be steamrolled by a bunch of Warhawk advisors. And let's be honest, if Eugene Debs had been president during this time, presidents have a lot more independent say-so on foreign policy and questions of war and things like that than they do on domestic policy. So, you know, if Debs had been elected president in 1912, given the makeup of the Congress and Supreme Court at the time, I really believe that much of his domestic program wouldn't have had a chance at getting implemented anyway. So, given that I know the script of what actually happens over the next four years, if I could have voted in the 1912 election, or much more pointfully, because one vote rarely makes any difference, if I could have waved a magical historical wand to determine the outcome of the 1912 election, socialist Eugene Debs, of all people, would actually be my choice. He really is my favorite socialist, or at least my favorite famous prominent socialist, in American history. For sure, I think he's wrong about a whole host of issues, but he was dead right on the single most important issue of the time, 
staying the hell out of World War I. And he had the balls to go to prison over it. So that gives me confidence that if he'd been president on this issue, he would have stood fast no matter what. By the way, I also probably would have voted for Debs in 1920 because as much as I do have some affection for Warren Harding, I think that just in purely symbolic terms, to vote for Eugene Debs in 1920 when he was running for president from federal prison is pretty much the biggest middle finger you could give to Wilson and the establishment for having gotten the U.S. into World War I. So anyway, I am generally a non-voter myself, and this is, of course, just a crazy speculative exercise, but nonetheless, I find it interesting sometimes to ponder, and especially with this election in 1912, because we know that World War I is going to start just two years later, and it's this weird four-way race. So this one, to me, is a particularly interesting one to sort of thought experiment about and say, well, if we're going to play the game of lesser evil, who actually is the lesser evil in 1912? Now, if you take World War I out of the equation, if that hadn't happened during that time period, I'd probably give it to Taft. Because if you take World War I out of the equation, then domestic matters are much more important. But the war is there, so we have to kind of take it into account. But anyway, shifting back to Wilson to wrap up this episode. Late on the night of Wilson's presidential election victory, William McCombs, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee and Wilson's former campaign manager, came to meet Wilson to congratulate him and also, of course, to try to begin setting himself up for something in return for having been party chairman during Wilson's campaign and having been his main campaign advisor earlier on. But Wilson, who had started to have various issues and reservations with McCombs over the course of the last several months, greeted McCombs very coldly, saying to him, quote, Before we proceed, I wish it clearly understood that I owe you nothing. End quote. McCombs then began to talk about all the various ways he had contributed to Wilson winning the election, to which Wilson responded, quote, God ordained that I should be the next president of the United States. Neither you nor any other mortal could have prevented that. End quote. Wilson refused to have any other private meetings with McCombs after this, and the only political bigwig he conferred with over the next week or so would be Colonel House, whom Wilson talked to quite a bit on the phone. Now, that statement about Wilson saying how God had chosen him to be the next president, I think pretty clearly shows Wilson's arrogance and self-righteousness. I mean, I'll grant him that he had some good reasons for wanting to distance himself from McCombs, who had shown himself to be a very flawed guy in a variety of ways. But to do so by making the grandiose claim that God has destined you to have won the election. So you don't owe any human being anything from having helped your campaign. It's just a level of arrogance and self-righteousness that makes me sick. I mean, it's about as much arrogance and self-righteousness as you could get short of saying, I am God, is to say, 
God gave me this position. God put me here. Therefore, I owe no one, mortal, anything. Now, back in these days, Inauguration Day was still in March, not in January as it is now. So presidents had a lame duck period about twice as long as what they have now. On November 15th, the Wilsons traveled to New York City, where Woodrow Wilson met in person with Colonel House to discuss cabinet nominations. And we'll talk about Wilson's cabinet picks next episode. The day after that meeting, the Wilson family hopped on a ship to Bermuda for a month-long vacation. After they returned from this trip in late December, the Wilsons traveled to Stanton, Virginia, Wilson's birthplace. In a speech he gave there, Wilson talked about his being born a Southerner who went on to be governor of a northern state and who had now been elected president. And he expressed hope that his presidency might be, quote, an instrument in drawing together the hearts of all men in the United States in the service of a nation that has neither region nor section, nor north, nor south, end quote. He then reflected on assuming the presidency and on working with politicians who might not want a massive increase in government power and activity. And he said that these sorts of people will, quote, have to be mastered in order that they shall be made the instruments of justice and mercy. This is not a rosewater affair. This is an office in which a man must put on his war paint. Fortunately, I have not such a visage as to mind marring it, and I don't care whether the war paint is becoming or not. End quote. you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level, 
And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you'll be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. (laughs) 